You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> How you doing, Jason? I'm doing well this morning. It's a great day. It's really nice out. Yeah, it's just been like so, I don't know, this past weekend, just mm-hmm. sitting outside on the front porch, the tulips are coming up out of the garden and everything. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you tend to go outside and try to like do as much outside or work outside when the weather is in your favor? Is that something you try to do? I like to practice outside if I can, mm-hmm. but I got to be aware of the neighbors because practicing scales and stuff for hours probably doesn't make them too happy. <laughs> no, it's, um, even though it's like, what instrument would you be practicing outside? This past weekend, I've been getting really into Indian music and I have a bass sitar and it's called a Serbahar. And I've been practicing that out on the front porch. Is it, is it loud? Like, would you say like, your no, neighbors, it's not loud. No, it didn't seem like it would be, especially bass instruments tend to be a lot quieter. Yeah. My one neighbor is pretty crazy though. And just any, she has problems with all the neighbors around her and she's just crazy. So any little thing, like last night she was yelling at me because I let my dog out at like 1030 and she was saying, oh, those lights are so bright, you asshole. And like from her window, it's just bizarre. Mm. You know, that's underestimated or underrated actually, right word to use, um, a good neighbor. Mm -hmm. A lot of people um, have great neighbors. I have amazing neighbors and some people don't. I try to be an amazing neighbor too. I never complain about kids crossing the yard, someone being a little loud, a party one night. It's like, I want, I do those things too. Like, I don't know. Let's just live, coexist. If there's a true problem, I'll go like talk to you about it. Like I wouldn't call the cops or anything. Why why would you do that? You know? Yeah. Does anything like that ever happen? Police have to come? Um, well, she was calling the village a bunch of times on my mom because there was a because there was some stuff in our yard that mm-hmm. kind of needed to be cleaned up. But she called, you know, constantly, and it wasn't even I don't think to get it back at my mom, but she had something with the village where they wouldn't let her build a garage, so she was trying to like get back at the village. I don't know, it's just a whole weird, crappy situation. Yeah, she's yeah. just she's a wacko. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're able to play outside because you do have a good, decent side yard size yard in. You have a lot of instruments. Do you practice anything else outside or just? Not lately, but I think I'm going to get the cello out there. The bass is kind of like, it's just too much of a hassle to get outside. Can we uh, preface for the listeners watching and listening all the instruments you have that you play just so they get a foundation of like where we're going with like. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to just kind of list off the instruments you play, know how to play, have in your possession. Okay. Um, well, my main instrument is upright bass. That's the one I'm most comfortable on, and that's what I get gigs on, and that's my main thing. But over the years, I've kind of delved into other music, just just as a hobby. I, I wouldn't say for some of these instruments I'm, you know, like a performing level, but I can get by on some of them. But I really like to play cello um, just because the music – a lot of the music on upright bass, they they take transcriptions from cello, and it just is. I think it sounds better on cello. So I just kind of mess around to play Bach cello suites and stuff, or not play them all, but work on Bach on cello. And then I've really gotten into Indian music for the past while. I don't like know, ten years. Yeah, it's it, been a while. On and off, ten years. But this last year or two, at the beginning of the pan- pandemic, I told myself I want to stick with having some Indian music because I'll put it away for months at a time and I just want to stick with it this time. So I also have a sitar, a um a serbahar, which is the bass sitar. Um I have a piano, an organ, and then I um before the pandemic started I got a MIDI keyboard and it has this uh 
piano software where it has like 20 pianos and harpsichords and organs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's fun to mess around with. Um, what else? A little violin. I don't play violin anymore. It, it was too hard to try to do all that stuff. You were doing it for a while though. Yeah. And you're, you're getting pretty good at it, I think. I mean, I know you're, for those listening, like you've been professionally playing in orchestras around the Midwest and in Chicago for eight years, 10 years, a while. Probably about 10 years 10 or years. so. So your standard is higher than anybody else's. So when I say like, yeah, you're pretty decent, like you're like, no, no, no. I, I play with real violinists and viola players and cello players, you know? So. Yeah. Which, yeah, I get it. But to like the layman's ear, to the average listener, like, oh, you could just pick that up and play it, you know? They don't, they don't really know. Well, I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, I play violin when really I don't really play violin. Right. I mean, I could like pick it up and play around with it. But, right. But what I have been doing recently is I have – I took my guitar, my electric guitar, and I have it tuned in fifths. So it's like the bottom, it's, I have, I took the five strings and the bottom four are like a cello, C, G, D, A. And then the top four are like a violin, G, D, A, E. So theoretically you could play, you know, I was like working on a Bach violin piece on guitar. So I, what I would want to do is not play violin, but play violin music on like a five string cello or something. Mm. Because the guitar, oh, I'm kind of getting off track. What else? Okay, so yeah, the piano. <laughs> you can finish that thought before we go back to what instruments you play. Okay, yeah, so the guitar, it's become like its own thing, kind yeah. of like a violin-cello hybrid. Mm -hmm. And it's a tool, since it has frets, to um, learn like the cello music or violin music, but you kind of have the, like playing bowling with the, um, what are those things called, the guards or whatever? Oh, bumpers? Bumpers. Yeah. Because it has frets, so you don't have to worry about intonation. And it's mm -hmm. just easier. It's just easier. So you can learn that music on that instrument, and then it's not too different to just go apply it to cello because it's this, basically the same spacing and... Oh, the same distance. Yeah. Okay. So you can learn it on guitar and then transfer it to cello, and you already know the music. It's just you have to learn. But when you say that the motion of playing like this and then going like that, that kind of is a game changer in how you play, right? It means yeah, it, I mean, it's different. It's not it's not exactly ideal, but, you know, it, it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I've been really getting into singing. Really? And it's like solfege. And then in Indian music, they have a thing called sargam, mm. which is basically like exactly like solfege. What's the difference? Um, well, Indian music is a lot – it's similar in a lot of ways to Western music, but it's also really different. They've, they take um, – they don't have harmony – like Bach and Mozart, how they have a melody and then like chords underneath. But what they've delved into is rhythm and melody. So it's not complex in a harmonic way, but it's complex in a rhythmic, melodic way. Mm. So they just all kinds of crazy stuff with rhythm and, and, uh, and um, melody. But with how the sarcom's different is they just have different syllables. Like for the names, it's sa, re, ga, ma, pa, da, ni, sa. And those are short for like Saja, Rishab. Like each name has, each mm -hmm. note has a name. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the names are. I know what the the, solf, the the syllables are for when you sing. And is it eight? Like in Western music? Is yeah. It, it's eight? Okay. But they have, there's two different, um, there's North Indian music, North Indian classical music, and South Indian classical music. And they're a little different. But the South Indian stuff, they have 72 scales. And that's, it's basically just all the mathematical possibilities of seven notes. Mm. But 
I'd like to like just go through that for fun eventually, mm-hmm. just to improve your ear. Yeah. But the singing is is it just improves your ear. Mm-hmm. Like um. Yeah. So you've played a lot of Western music growing up. Um, when did you start playing bass, upright bass? I started, I think, in sixth grade because my one buddy, he had electric bass, electric bass and played like Blink-182 and stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. So I ended up getting an electric bass. And then somehow I got into the jazz band at Payless South. No, Payless. Yeah, Payless South with uh, Bill Hansen. He was a great jazz drummer and he was a real inspirational guy. But I started in band and jazz band in sixth grade. So you started at 11 years old. That's when you started playing bass. Yeah. So was it electric like bass or upright bass? First, it was electric bass. Right. Um, yeah, I had a blue squire. <laughs> it was a good bass. Those are, I like Fender, their sound and everything. Mm-hmm. And then what else? So then I um, rented a, a small, crappy upright bass from Quinlan and Fabish mm-hmm. at the request of the band director at. Um, in middle school to play in a jazz band. Mm-hmm. And I just really liked it and I seemed to have a knack for it and the teachers, all my teachers gave me positive um, feedback. So Did, kinda, did they like, notice something? Did they say, like, oh, you're, like, you're lit. You're pretty good. You should keep doing this. Like, yeah, it's in so many words, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then I think in uh, seventh grade or something, or maybe, no, it was at the beginning of high school, my parents bought me an upright bass I met some guy, we met some guy, his name, his name was Slavic and he was bringing bases over from Czechoslovakia. I don't know if that was his actual name. Maybe it was like an alias because it was a little shady. Oh, Slavic language. That's like a, Slavic is like a type of place and people, right? I don't know. A heritage. That's what he said his name yeah. was. It could be a name. Who knows? I don't yeah, know. maybe it's his name. I don't know anything about that. So we got that base. That's the base I have now. Um, and then in high school, I got into youth orchestra is this youth orchestra called Protégé Philharmonic and Classical Symphony. And they rehearsed do- at downtown Chicago. And it was just cool to go there every Saturday. You'd go there Saturday mornings. And it, it was just a, it was fun and inspiring to be going downtown to downtown Chicago to play classical music every weekend. And I just liked the orchestra and was good at it and kind of took over my life in a way. You started doing it in high school, right? Yeah, the, cl- the classical stuff, yeah. So... You went to Stag High School, which is not too far from here. And you were doing jazz band in high school? Um, like, what were you playing remember. in high school? In high school, at Stag, they didn't have an orchestra or anything, mm-hmm. so I kind of got my stuff outside of the um, outside of high, high school. But I played in the band every once in a while, and then when I got more rebellious in senior year and stuff, I kind of just didn't, I wasn't involved with band at all. Mm-hmm. But for a while, I think I played in the jazz band and the band too. They, I would just play, I would like double the tuba part or something in, okay. in band. So you mostly outside of high school were focusing on orchestra mm-hmm. and doing that. And you were doing it downtown at Civic, right? Wasn't it CSO? Not CSO. Oh, yeah. I, my senior year of, civ, of high school, I got in as an associate member of Civic. So I wasn't a real, a full member, but I would like sub if they needed somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was actually, we rehearsed at Symphony Center where CS Chicago Symphony plays. Mm-hmm. And I got to have like sectionals with Joe Guastafesti, who was my teacher, one of my teachers at, um, he was a principal base of CSO f- since for, for like 40, 40 years. And he started in 1960. Can you elaborate for the listeners, like how significant that is? Like, in the orchestra world, that's like... 
Well, that guy just has so much experience. Yeah. I mean, he's played with every major conductor of, you know, that you can think of. And mm-hmm. he's played all the rep numerous times in different interpretations. And he's just a cool guy. He was like an old school Italian guy from the Bronx, no, from Brooklyn. And how did he come to know you? Um, well, in uh, middle school or high school, I can't remember. I, I was studying with this um, lo- local guy, Don DeSanto. He's an upright jazz player, and um, he has like a recording studio in his basement and stuff. Great guy, great musician and everything. And I was studying with him for a while. And then there's another local guy, Larry Gray, who is a, a complete genius. He plays... He's kind of my inspiration of why I do other instruments, mm-hmm. but he's a he could do gigs on piano, jazz piano, classical piano, um, drums. He's he's mostly an upright bass player, but he also plays guitar, like jazz guitar, amazing, and cello. He got his degree at Roosevelt in cello performance. Then just like a really inspiring guy, mm-hmm. but he's one of my teachers, and I've been wanting to you know, start taking lessons with, with him again, just on general music. Like mm-hmm. how do you keep all this different stuff worked up? You know, how do you practice different instruments and, and all that jazz stuff too would be great to learn. Mm-hmm. But with, um, doing a classical, there wasn't really a lot of time to do jazz too. Mm-hmm. And so, so how did you get connected with, with the principal basis of CSO? Oh, um, so Larry Gray studied with him and he, introduced me and then I started taking lessons with him my senior year of summer my senior year of summer mm-hmm. in high school so right when you graduated or the year before you graduated um yeah actually the year before I graduated okay yeah. so like junior going into senior year yeah and now is that like standard procedure for someone like him to like take on someone who's 17 years old to like study underneath him teaching really wasn't his main thing Mm-hmm. I don't think he really taught a whole lot. Like uh, he did some stints at Northwestern and stuff, but I think he just liked to play and he wasn't like, sometimes those lessons, they weren't like lessons, like play your scales and do this. They were more like coachings. Like, um, I would play music. I'd have to have the music prepared and I'd play for him and he'd give me comments. Mm. So it wasn't like, you know, do this fingering or it was pretty thinking back on it. It was pretty advanced. Like sometimes I would leave those lessons like wanting to know a little more pedagogical stuff, like, you know, more that kind of thing. But also I'm glad I had that kind of training because it really made me think, be able to think creatively and how to come up with my own bowings. You know, when you use the bow, you have to write in what you're going to, you know, what direction the bow is and Mm. come up with fingerings and just be more creative with it. That's intense. Like, that's a lot of information to be trying to do at that age with that type of person. Like, mm-hmm. showing you someone who's been doing it for 40 years with someone you probably knew a lot about. Yeah. You know, and he probably knew nothing about you because you're a kid. And he's just like, yeah, this kid's good. Um, I remember those days because for those listening, um, I've known Jason since about 2007. Like, I've known of you before that just through like Jake and other people you know yeah me but too. I feel like per yeah like we probably knew of each other but we personally have known each other for 14 years and I'm around a lot of musicians and artists a lot and even then um, a lot of our friends played but you were the only person I knew that was so adamant about practice you did your due diligence you focused on it we'd be hanging out all day having bonfires and doing dumb things in the in the forest and backyard, just being kids. 
and you weren't around. And then that night you'd come over, be like, what'd you do today, Jason? And like, oh, I just practiced upright bass for how long? Eight hours. <laughs> we're just like. <laughs> I wish I could get back to that. We're just like, what? Eight? Like, I practiced because I played guitar too. And I was like, oh, I practiced guitar for like 37 minutes today. And I was done with it. And you went for eight hours on one thing. And you stuck with that, and that's, like, always reflected in your ability to play music, and that's probably why you've been able to translate to 10, 12 instruments or more, like how you can kind of just pick them up and figure them out. Mm-hmm. You might not be as proficient as you would think of as, a, like, a professional, but you're really proficient at a lot of instruments as far as just, like, being able to play them, understand them, learning, knowing where notes are, and how you can kind of get from point A to point B. You might not be as fluent as upright bass, you know? I think what it is is I just know how much I don't know. Yeah. And you're just like, crap, man. I'm just, I'm like a tadpole. I don't even, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the further I get into the music thing, I love it and everything, but you just realize how vast it is. Mm-hmm. And it's just, there's just so much to learn. So much different regions of the world. The fact that you went from Western classical music to Eastern classical music and yeah. like are bridging and the gaps. That's the under, dream. Yeah, no. There's something happening with the the Indian music and the Western music and the singing. I want to somehow combine it. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how, but because to take the energy from the Indian music, because they're all about they don't really have sheet music, and how they learn is face to face with a teacher. Like the teacher will play a phrase or a line or whatever, and you have to be so in tune and with your have a good enough ear to reproduce what they're playing back and forth. And that's how you learn their music. And to be able to hear, have an ear so well that you can like listen to the radio and know what, what they're playing or what chords they're playing or just to have such an in-tuned musical sense that you're just like can absorb music all around you. That's where I want to get, but it's going to take a lot of time. But I think that's what the singing is going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that seems like to be like your last step because you've always focused on the strings and then you moved from like fretless strings to playing like keys. You started playing a lot more harpsichord, organ, piano, mm-hmm. which is a lot of melody and, and rhythm kind of. Piano is an interesting instrument. It's very like, it's melodic, but like it's percussive. and it, it, it It's technically a percussion instrument. Yeah. Piano is. Yeah, so you, and have you ever, you've kind of dove into tablas and, and percussion, right? Yeah, I, w- I was actually taking tabla lessons for a year or two, mm-hmm. but I, I, like, I like tabla, but I, there was a certain point where I had to t- pick just a few instruments because it was just like <laughs> making me go insane trying to keep like mm-hmm. trying to hit. Because if you have like five or ten instruments or whatever, seven instruments you're trying to practice, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. You kind of have to Most pick. Most people stop at like two or three. Yeah, Max, you know. so I stopped the tabla and because they would make my hands hurt to to play the the baya, which is the bass drum. You have to have your hand like this, mm-hmm. like that, and that, that was hurting my wrist. So, I think it was hurting your wrist because you spent so many years doing cello by like having your wrist in other contorted. Yeah, my positions. left hand gets all the work because this is the fretting hand for the bass, and mm-hmm. if you, I mean, if I play bass and then piano and then guitar and whatever, I mean, the left hand gets a lot of work. How is your left hand after 20 years of doing all this? It has its good days and its bad days. That's another why, thing why I'm doing the singing because I want to be able to practice away from the instrument. Mm, but still have that. Yeah, use your brain. The to, pitch training and stuff and mm-hmm. rhythm training, yeah. That makes sense because you're no joke like 
like I mentioned before, most people play music. They'll have band practice a couple times a week, maybe once a week. They'll play 20 minutes, 40 minutes a day, not much, maybe take days off. And you're doing, what's the lowest amount you practice in a day? Like when you have, like, I'm going to practice today, what, a couple hours? Yeah, usually I'd like to do at least one or two. If one I'm, or two. If I'm kind of taking a day off, and I mean, sometimes I will just take a day off. Yeah. But if not, at least one or two, I'll sing a little bit or play a little something. So one hour minimum on a day that's like a light day. Yeah. What's like a lot? What's a big day? Well, since I've been getting older, I, sometimes I, I've I've lost that focus that I did when I was younger. Mm. But I I like to do 50-minute sessions and then take a break. So recently I've been getting more into practicing and I'll do like eight or nine 50-minute sessions. So that's about like eight hours or so. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> that's... I, I mean, wish I could do that every day and really get somewhere. Because the only way to get better is to practice, like well, to put course. that time in. But it's just, it, it can be a mental drain. I mean, that's excessive. Like, if you do that every day, you you have a 40-hour work week of just sitting there practicing. Yeah. Most people can barely do a 40-hour work week of anything when they have a lot of downtime. Because no one, it's very rare you're just constantly moving and doing stuff for 40 hours straight when you're working. But you're... When you're practicing, you're using your brain a yeah, lot. Yeah, you get like pretty tired. Lot. And muscles, like your body, your hands, your wrists, your fingers. It's exhausting. It's very exhausting to practice. Like, we have band practice every Monday, Tuesday. And I'm so exhausted. It's about two hours each time. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm like hot. I'm drained. I feel like I just spent all day thinking. Like, it's exhausting to like learn material, yeah. apply it, understand it, feel it, um, improvise things. Because improvisation, as you've probably learned, is very mentally draining. You're you're thinking off the cuff, using a foundation that you've built, like in your subconscious of years of playing music. But you have to think in the moment, apply it. It has to kind of make sense, and it has to follow a direction, and then go back to like a, a foundation again. It's a really weird place. Like, do you do a lot of improv with the work you do with orchestral pieces, or it's it's mostly following the notes? You can't really improvise, right? Well, when I was, for a long time, improvisation kind of freaked me out because it's just, there's so, it's infinite possibilities. That's, that's why I love it. And it just, it just was like, I can't even deal with that. I'm just going (laughs) to read sheet music and read Bach and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But recently with the Indian music and I'd like to get into jazz and be a little bit more versatile, but with Indian music, it's the same thing. It's just improvisation and, but improvisation within really strict rules and guidelines, mm-hmm. which makes it easier. Mm-hmm. But the way they improvise, it's it's an amazing. Um, yeah. I know that when they're playing with the rhythm, the tablas, I mean, they have all kinds of different time cycles, you know, and from four to 10, four, they have 14 beat time cycles. And they're classical musicians. They can improvise with the tabla in those cycles and just, they can play in a raga, and then they'll, when they're playing with the tabla, the ma- the big thing is they have to get back on the first beat with the tabla. Mm-hmm. So they have to play, not only improvising, but they have to keep the the the, the time cycle in their head, and they have to mm-hmm. end on the first beat. And mm-hmm. then there's a thing called a T high, which is they they play a rhythm three times, like da 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 da, and that's the first beat. And they could be uh, as simple as and and complex as you want, but to be able to be on the cuff and be playing like that. It's just amazing to me that they can 
have such a fine-tuned musical sense that they can improvise like that. Well, it's something they grow up doing, I'm assuming. Like, you hear that all the time. It, it actually comes more naturally the more you do it. Like, when you improvise, like, I do a lot of improv as, like, a uh, lead guitar player. Mm-hmm. Like, even, like, last night we were playing a song where the drummer was doing something in 7-4 time signature. And everyone was kind of following it, and I was just doing whatever I wanted. And I would land on it, and then go off, and then land on the downbeat of the first note of the of the you know progression again, and then go places and play in different time centers and hop back in. But they're all keeping that foundation. I'm allowed that freedom, but I, I could feel it, and I know. But that's because I've done it a lot. Mm-hmm. I could imagine if you don't do it a lot, it's extremely challenging and weird. It doesn't feel right. Do you find yourself coming from that tradition of? Most classical music is 3-4 and 4-4, right? Mm-hmm. And do you find it like, are you able to translate well to the odd time signatures of Indian music? Do they call it that? Do they associate it with like, this is an odd time signature? Or is that something that we as Western listeners say something is? Their standard is called teen tall, mm-hmm. and that's four groups of four beats. So it's 16 beats. Mm-hmm. And that's their standard. So the other stuff is, um, they are odd time signatures, but... They don't really think of it as odd. They just kind of just it's another time cycle to learn in or something. Why do you, why do you think we consider those things odd? Is it because we're not used to it in our music? It's just 4-4 four, four, and 3-4 for most of it? I'm not really sure why, but yeah, I think it's just because we're not exposed to 5-4 or 7s or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dave Brubeck did it in mm-hmm. Time Out, and that was a whole big thing. It's just not something that we use that often i mean and you know bach and mozart and those guys they just use their standard um time signatures and everything was that because what is the standard orchestral like um amount of people is in like 80 something something like that yeah now is it is it because it's hard to get 80 people to fall in line on something that's in seven four then goes to eleven four then goes to fifteen eight like is that why or is it because four four is just like everyone can keep on that and then do their complicated connections of building these chord and and complicated rhythm and melodies within that 4-4. Do you think it's... I wonder if that's, like, why it's kind of become that standard. It just makes it easier on that large scale. I think it's also just the money aspect. Like... How do you mean? I mean, I'm I'm sure an orchestra would be bigger if... Because, I mean, you have to pay everybody, and Mm. I don't don't think it has anything to do with playing together or Mm. the time signatures. It's just... That's kind of what standard is you know, four to six bass players. I mean, back in the day, they used to have, in the early 1900s, they'd have like 10 bass players. Oh, okay. CSO has eight bass players on their roster. Wow. That's a lot. But, um, yeah, I don't know if the orchestras are, there's the size they are because of odd time signatures. But it's definitely a challenge to play an orchestra and those things because a lot of times the, the musicians aren't used to it. Right. So maybe I, it's just something you have to be used to and then it's normalized. Yeah. Right? You just get used to it. I've been lucky with the Indian music because going back to Western music, it's kind of the rhythms are easy and especially the hard rhythm stuff. It's like, I don't know, it's just a, it's cool to take from these different instruments. You kind of, it kind of informs everything else and it starts to meld into one approach or one, it melds into one thing. So Mm -hmm. I can take different things I've learned from Indian music or singing or whatever and apply it to playing an orchestra. And it just, even if it doesn't make me a better bass player, it makes me a more 
worldly musician and I can like more intuitive maybe your, your brain's firing differently if you're learning that yeah. information you know oh I've been doing drums too so that's been helping the rhythm like a drum kit yeah oh you have a drum kit mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was actually uh, Charlie's old kit I got it oh nice my brother let me borrow it but have you ever heard the band Medeski Martin and Wood no they're this awesome funk jazz trio and they're just it's just so cool what they do but their drummer has a book out called Rhythm, R-I-D-D-I-M, um, Claves of African Origin. So all the book is, is um, clave patterns. And that's, a clave pattern is, they'll play it behind like a, a salsa or whatever. It's just dot, 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 So they'll be playing it on like um, a clave, which is two, I don't know, like two pieces of wood. They'll make the click or you'll play it on a cowbell or something. But this guy took all different patterns and he, um, you play the, the clave pattern with your right hand on the cymbal or on a cowbell or something. And then you do counter rhythms with your right foot on the bass drum, your left foot on the hi-hat, and then you use your um, left hand to play on the toms. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that just for fun. And it's like that stuff, you get into a groove with that, you know, da, 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 da. I know it's just. I've seen that done before. I've seen that done with certain bands that have come through, mm-hmm. um, salsa bands. I've seen that done. It's very interesting. It's very like uh, it seems complicated, but it also feels very like natural and kind of helps. Like I don't know, rhythm's interesting. It helps yeah. really keep together something. And I don't. know, There's so many incremental beats within like a downbeat and an upbeat. It's pretty interesting. To, like when a, when a drummer can get those sixteenth, thirty second notes in, you know. Yeah, and I don't. For some reason, to listen to it sounds complicated. But as a player, when someone's doing that, it's actually very helpful because it even hones in more on your rhythm. You have more you can follow. If that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of that um, um, stuff you're talking about, those patterns originated a lot of them from Africa, mm-hmm. like jazz. That jazz pattern on a hi hat on mm-hmm. a ride cymbal. Da, 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 that's a form of a clave, mm-hmm. and it's back from Africa and then a lot of that stuff was brought over in the Caribbean and all that and it just kind of went up you know to New Orleans and everything but it's all related and it just and you can even take those clave patterns and apply them to Indian music is it more related to the Indian music than Western music it's kind of just its own thing I mean I'm just playing some patterns on like a drum kit I'm not really immersed in like you know African or Caribbean music or anything Mm -hmm. but those patterns that dot dot you can play them on sitar it's called jala you'll play the main string and then there's three higher pitch strings that add rhythm to the playing so you could go like and you could play these african clave rhythms on sitar and it's i don't know it's just cool to tie everything together like that mm-hmm. but the the drums have been helping my r- rhythm too and um that's got to help in the orchestra to just be able to feel a groove i've noticed sometimes if we play jazz or or certain kinds of music, mostly jazz, in the orchestra, sometimes the it doesn't have that swing to it, and it feels kind of stiff. And I, I just, sometimes maybe the musicians don't realize that, you know, you have to f- have that feel and that sound, and it's something you can't really teach. It's just, you have to hear it. And if you don't hear it, you're not going to have that feel. Hmm. If you don't have an awareness of it, you're not going to have the feel for it. I wonder how much of that awareness is self-imposed or self-taught 
or if it's innate and natural and different for everyone. You know, like earlier when you were talking about when you were young and these really profound or prolific um, instructors like saw something in you, I wonder if that's just who you are or if that's something you learned to do as you got older or that's something because you, you know, like you said earlier, you, you have like a, you're kind of like not so much into trying to do improvisation because it might be a little overwhelming to like just make up stuff on the spot and just spitfire. Mm-hmm. But if someone gave you sheet music, you would play it to the most people's ears perfectly for days. Like, you know, especially upright bass. So, so like, I wonder how much of that is, but because of what you've been doing, you've been able to hone in on that that classical music and even like kind of do it even more and better. So do you think it just takes time to learn how to like be open to that thing? I think it's something that's taught through lessons and school and getting degrees in, in music. You know, it's kind of, it's hard to say. What do you think? Like, do you think it's a little bit of both? Do you think that you just have to keep an open palate as a musician to try to take in as much as possible so you can get your mind to those places of not just pushing away rhythm or melody or solos or improv, but kind of take all of it in and kind of try to use all that to really be able to focus even on like an orchestra, you know, where you said other people might have a hard time because they don't know rhythm as well. They might just focus on their instrument and not go to those places where they're learning what you just said, that that old African beat hitting that cowbell and, and, and hitting, you know, the kick and the mm-hmm. hi-hat and then using the toms, like kind of getting more, having more control rhythmically. I feel like we're more rhythmic animals than anything else. I think pitch comes second. Um, everything we do is based in rhythm. We, we chunk everything. We speak in rhythms. We walk in rhythms. We breathe in rhythms. We have a heartbeat in a rhythm. Mm-hmm. It's very rhythmic based. I think that helps us put our life into order uh, on a very low evolutionary level, you know. And then I think pitch comes next, like through speech, crying, screaming, talking, that all comes next. I don't know. I'm just ranting now. I don't even know where I'm going. Yeah. Well, I would have a thread that you were talking about is I don't know if I think it just depends on the person whether yeah. they can learn that stuff on their own or mm-hmm. school. Um, I'm not going to say I'm sure school because I didn't really you know I didn't finish my degree. I wish I would have, but I've been able to learn a lot on my own mm-hmm. just by being interested. If I'm interested in something, I'll just get a book or look into it because with all the technology and stuff, we have so many resources. Mm-hmm. But for some people, they might get that inspiration from school or from a teacher. But not that I have any room to talk, but I feel like sometimes the school, they don't really go too deep into the different topics and you Mm kind of just get the quick rundown of it. Well, you do have room to talk because if we can go back to your senior year, like you were going to go to college for upright bass, correct? Mm -hmm. And so you went through high school with music and then you were going to go to, if you don't mind talking about it, like where you were going to go to in New York City. I guess. I don't know. I don't, don't, don't really like to. to. We don't have to. It's fine. If you want to, I mean, you, we were going to go to DePaul at least in Chicago and you did. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did go to the whole New York thing and like auditioned at Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music and the teacher there really liked me and I was, had an opportunity to, to go to Juilliard, but I just, it didn't feel right. I'm kind of glad I didn't go because my, you know, my dad had passed away that summer in his mm-hmm. motorcycle accident and it just probably wouldn't have ended well because mm-hmm. that would have been hard to go live in New York. So I ended up going to DePaul, but man, that New York thing, that would have been cool. I kind of <laughs> wish I did it. 
it would have things would have been so different though. See, it's funny that at first you didn't want to talk about it. Then you're like, I'm glad I didn't go, and now you're like, I wish I went. <laughs> <laughs> See, when you just say something out loud, it's crazy how much it just starts changing when you start to think about it. And I remember that. That was a very interesting, probably a very hard decision to make. I can't imagine. It's weird that it's probably a stupid kid decision to make. Well, it's the problem with the age in which you go to college. You're most kids don't understand the gravity of college, secondary, you know, post-secondary education. You're 16, 17, 18 years old. You know, we're in a basement recording your video mm-hmm. for your tryouts. I don't know what you'd call it for your application to Juilliard and we're a bunch of teenagers and you know, joking around and being goofy and it's like that's a serious thing. I and recorded it in Joe Joe's basement. Yeah, I was there. I remember we set up the mics and <laughs> had the camera. This was probably the fall of 2007 or spring 2008. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember you're like, yeah, you know, I got in, but I, don't, I might go to DePaul because you wanted to study with the principal bass player of Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, right? with, with Joe. And then I got into Civic too. So I wanted to do – the plan was to do two years in Civic and two years in Chicago and then go to New York. But it just didn't happen. I kind of – didn't too didn't do too well at school and for whatever reason I didn't like the classes and I just wanted to practice and mm-hmm. ended up dropping out. What did your instructors, professors think of you? Like they probably saw like this is a really talented person, but he's not taking to like traditional education of this like maybe conservatory style yeah. music playing, you know? I wish I would have just got with the program and just finished my degree. I mean looking back now, you mm-hmm. know, I would have I wish I could have just finished because now it's pretty unrealistic that I'll be able to I don't want to go back and take math class and mm-hmm. I just want to play. Yeah. And there's been a lot of musicians in the past that didn't have college and they were fine. So we'll, I don't know what the future will hold, but mm-hmm. um, I forgot what we were talking about. Well, it is interesting that orchestras want people who have degrees. Like don't, when you do tryouts, don't they just listen to you behind a curtain so they don't know your gender, sex, skin color, ethnicity, nothing. So like yeah. it's unbiased. So like why do they look at your portfolio and be like, oh, it doesn't have a degree. Like why don't they just listen for the skill? Why Like that's the type of subject matter where a degree can only mean so much when someone can just show you like this is what how I play. This is my skill. And there, how many people are listening on the other side? Three, four people? It depends on the audition. But right. usually they'll have, they'll have a panel and – I'm not really too sure because they're always behind a curtain. Mm-hmm. It's weird. They'll be in the middle of the, the concert hall in the audience with a curtain, and then you're on stage by yourself. That's it's so terrifying, bizarre. huh? Yeah, but usually I think, you know, maybe seven or eight. But, and you think they would just listen for it. Like, why does it matter if you have a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate in these things? Do yeah, you? I think technically they're supposed to, and I think mostly they're pretty they're blind auditions. They don't know until the later rounds who you are. But I think also there's room to just, you know, they can cheat or know who mm-hmm. who's playing. Or I heard a story of a violinist that said some auditionee would play a little longer than the than the allotted excerpt just to let the person behind the screen know who they were. It was them, and yeah. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's stuff like that where they there's they, corruption they, everywhere. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, it's just it is what it is. Do you think it's the prestige when you go to an orchestra to see the, you know, the orchestra player and you open up the pamphlet and it says everyone where their master's degrees were from? Do you think 
it makes them look better. Like, oh, look at look at our level of, of musicians we have. They're all great, and they all have these these credentials that we get to look at. Do you think it's like a a gloating thing that or- orchestras have that they they want to be that highbrow? Like, we got advanced people. Do you think it's something like that? I'm just spitballing here, by the way. Maybe a little. Sometimes I picked up on that in different situations where it's like it just looks you just look like you're better at something because we have 80 people who all have these fancy degrees from Juilliard and DePaul and University of Northwestern and, and school of music, like all yeah. these things, you know, versus just like this person's been playing for 20 years. Like that's it. Yeah. Because that for some reason means less to people than this person went to school and did two years of gen eds and two years of music classes, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. But I've noticed that when I've gone to your orchestras, um, I've seen that in the pamphlets. It will have a lot of that kind of like pushing people up like and yeah all the summer festivals they've done and yeah all. it gets i've kind of gone on a, a weird crooked path so i'm kind of a separate from that whole college educated mm-hmm. summer classes and so i don't know it just it is what it is but you're more musically inclined and more musically educated than anybody i've ever met in my life like you know Thanks. more <laughs> no i'm serious it's like you know you have we're gonna get to this you have a book in front of you yeah. That we're going to get to. Um, but you play over a dozen instruments. You're definitely fluent in a handful. You're absolutely, like, in my eyes, just, like, the best bass player I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of bass players. And I don't know, it's it's crazy because all you've done for 20 years is just put in the work. You sat there at home. You read the booklets. You improvised on things. You you followed the rules. You tra- you traveled the Midwest to play all these orchestras. Like how many orchestras have you played in or been in? Uh, well, right now I'm a member of three. Mm-hmm. Right now I'll just wherever they need me, I'll drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and before the um, before Corona hit, I was getting called for you know a little better gigs and. So hopefully that stuff comes back. I think it's going to come back by like July, August, to be honest. Yeah, I felt like my name was getting out there and I was just getting yeah. a good reputation and everything. People were like reaching out to you left yeah. and stuff. Do you have like a, an email they would yeah. reach you through and stuff and phone calls and text messages? And mm-hmm. did you find it people in your world having like an internet presence helps with getting more people to reach out to you? Like an Instagram, Facebook presence? I wouldn't know because I don't Cause really don't. That's what I was asking because in my world of like the music scene, the underground music scene in this country on this in the world that's kind of the only way to like get through and like spread what you do through people mm-hmm. but in your world it's a little different so that's why i was asking i don't fully know how it works with um you know solo musicians playing in orchestras yeah maybe having a website or something it might, would probably might help. help doing studio gigs mm-hmm. that's probably would be very beneficial because you'd be you would be an amazing studio musician for like most studios in the city like come in and throw down many different instruments. Yeah. You know, I, I like the orchestra, but the audition process, because, I mean, you literally play excerpts from orchestral pieces. So you'll play, like, some excerpts from a Beethoven symphony and then Shostakovich, and it's just, it's kind of almost, I don't want to say unmusical, but it's just, you're, like, playing against a green screen. You're playing these excerpts in isolation, and it gets kind of boring to practice these same excerpts for years and years to play at these auditions because it's all the same group of excerpts. And you just kind of stop losing your, you stop growing as a musician. That's kind of why I've done all this other stuff because there's only so much you can do on upright bass and 
excerpts. You know, it, it, gets, it gets kind of boring. Why do they have the same ones over and over again? It's just the excerpts that have become standard. What are they? Do you, do you... Um, it's just a group of maybe 20 or 30 excerpts. There's stuff from Ein Heldenleben by Strauss. That's real big. Um, Beethoven five, Sim- Beethoven's fifth symphony. Um, some stuff from Bach, Shostakovich. There's some orchestral bass solos that come up a lot. Um, Mozart symphonies. Mm-hmm. There's a few that are always on auditions that are really freaking hard. Um, but yeah, it's just standard stuff. So if you played all these many, many times, yeah, do you have, you still have to practice them? They're not just like embedded in your musical DNA at this point, or just um, kind of get I think shake the rust a, off. There's a lot of baggage around them for me. Oh, like because you go to these auditions and you work your ass off, and then you don't advance or something, and it. Then so then there's like negative connotations. Yeah, negative with stuff it. with the music. So I've been trying to get past that, and I've been practicing excerpts, singing, and playing them on electric bass. Mm-hmm. You know, like just just to have a to learn them in a different way, and yeah. that's been kind of cool to like sing to solfege, like C C R A C F A R A C F A R A C M U N A Z N A C R A D A C C R A C F A. We are we are true musical nerds, Jason, because most people would be like, yeah, it doesn't sound that far. <laughs> yeah, this is real fun playing these excerpts on electric bass. But that's like that's the the drive and the passion that you have that has led you to being able to play music for twenty years, play around the country in different you know orchestras, having them reach out to you and have your name spread. Um, not going the academia route, the college route, mm-hmm. and just doing it the groundwork, doing it the old the old fashioned way. There's yeah. not school for this stuff that long ago it didn't exist mm-hmm. people just were taught by someone like you had um you know like joe would have just been the person that taught you and you would have been his protege or whatever and that's it like just how it was done and i don't know college is tricky like i i've always had a unique relationship with it going into the arts and i don't i don't think i would have been able to do college in a more traditional sense where you went and got like a degree in science or mathematics where i had all this is how you do it this is the scientific method. There's no ands or buts, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I've gotten to do like very creative things and have subjective thoughts. It's more about critiquing in your interpretation of something. And that's where I lie. Like I'm very close on the same belief system as you with like, I don't really like the control, the construct and these rules mm-hmm. of college or education. But I like to have you know, baseline rules that I can bend and wield in my favor however I want because it's subjective information. Yeah. You know, there's, at the core of it, is there an actual right way to play the instrument? If there was, there wouldn't be so many different people. No, there is. Is there? No, I'm just kidding. I was going to say there's not, though. (laughs) It's a rhetorical question. Like, I know there isn't. You know, that's why there's 20 people trying out for one position. Everyone's trying to play it the right yeah. way, but everyone's playing it their own way. At these auditions, though, the level's so high, everyone sounds good. Right. And it's just like... How do you tell the difference? Yeah, what, <laughs> what is the point of this? This is so weird. This guy sounds awesome. She sounds awesome. It's like... I'm sure when you're up to that point, you practiced for so much that week, like you're just at your best. Mm-hmm. You know, you're so smooth. You might be your own worst critic, but I'm sure you sound great too. Um, how many hours do you practice before, like... A big audition, like you put in like extra hours and stuff. I don't know. You just go, you just go crazy on it. You just practice. You go until you fall yeah, I asleep. Know. I don't like keep a log or right. anything. You're so used to it. it's probably normalized to you, you know, where you just, yeah. I it's the same thing. Like when I'm heavily involved in something, if someone were to ask me, like, oh, how long did it take? It's like I don't know. Like 
yeah. forever. I just sun up the sundown, sun up the sundown yeah. until it was done. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an obscure thing though, to be like an orchestral musician. It's like it such an old school it's rare. thing. Yeah. I know, it's it's, You're the Hopefully classical music's around for a while. <laughs> You're the only person I personally know that is someone who's in an orchestra, like, I know a lot of musicians, people who play in jazz band, who do studio work, but mm-hmm. you're the only one I know that's like a classically trained and and like professional, like hired person to play in orchestras around the Midwest. There's some people that, that I've talked to in the orchestras, they only listen to classical music. I could not imagine that. I that like sounds terrible. I like classical music, but I have to listen to like, I, I listen to all, stu- all stuff, you know, jazz, mm-hmm. Indian as you music, should, as you should, as a musician music. and as a person, you should definitely take in more music. Like that can't be good to only play classical music and only listen to it and nothing yeah. else. It sounds like torture. Like it's not <laughs> 1880, you know. Like you know, <laughs> the internet exists. There's um, there's a lot more out there. In fact, you can, if you went further, you could learn where orchestral music came from, where classical music came from. You know the eras of it. Like I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Your favorite is Bach. Oh yeah, and that's Baroque, mm-hmm. and that's what like 1600 to like 1780s, something 1800, like that, yeah. something like that. 200 years. My history of that's kind of loose, but what is it about that era that you navigate with so well, or you you're it's like magnetizing to you? Like I've, you've always hmm. been drawn to that. I know. I don't know. I've always just liked Bach. I don't know. I must. I don't know if I'm like. OCD or something. I like, I seem to like when I was a kid, I remember my mom, my mom would tell me I'd take my cars and like organize them by color and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, I always wanted to know the details. She, I had this dinosaur book and I asked her how to say stegosaurus. I'm like, is that how you really say it? Is that how you really pronounce it? Yeah. I was just like, I wanted to know these details. So yeah. like, that's one thing I've latched onto is Bach. Mm-hmm. I just like his music. It's just so, um, it's so complex and just beautiful and, I think it's the complexity that makes it because he was his own thing. He kind of took what came before him and synthesized it into his own, you know, he took all the Renaissance stuff and that all the different stuff and his counterpoint. I mean, it's never been topped. I mean, he took that whole thing and made it his own and it's like the best that's ever been. So people created. after him, like Mozart and Beethoven, they, you don't think they, have come close to like what he did. Like they've done their own thing, but it's not as big as what he had to come from and do because it was so many years before. Mm-hmm. There's way less to build off from. You know, it's coming out of the Renaissance era. Um, it's a whole new era of music and instruments and style. Like some of these instruments were newer to that time, you know? Yeah. Like, well, they're, they were great too in their own way. Beethoven and Bach, I mean, they're geniuses, you know, they're geniuses of Western civilization, but. Bach, um, he was all about counterpoint, like fugues and stuff. So he'll have two two voices playing simultaneously but different or, you know, five or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was all fugal counterpoint writing. And it, that stuff shows up every once in a while in, Bach, in um, Beethoven and Mozart and stuff. But that was kind of old-fashioned in those times. So um, they... The way Mozart is, there'll usually be a melody, like a singing melody, like in a, in the right hand on the piano, and then there'll be chords underneath. But in Bach, you'll like be playing all the, if you, if you have a four voice fugue, you have to play it with your two hands and there'll be four voices going at once. And you have to control the, the releases and the articulation for each voice. 
Hmm. Um, that is challenging. <laughs> so it's just different than Mozart and Beethoven. Mm-hmm. But there is this actually, for a while I was getting into this um, music th- theory that Bach and Beethoven and Mozart were played slower. Because hmm. we have we have metronome marks by people who are contemporaries of Beethoven and stuff, and he put metronome marks for Beethoven music, Mozart music, Bach music, and all of it's super fast, almost too fast to play. So they're, they're trying to figure out what, what's going on. But this guy has a theory that the metronome marks, they're for, because um, they had those pendulum metronomes, you know, like this. Mm-hmm. And the, instead of each being each beat being one, two, three, four, they read it as one, two, three, four. So instead of like, it's so it's like an extra half beat. Yeah, yeah. Because they used to before metronomes were invented, they had um, they used pendulums, so they would have a string hanging a certain length, and it would be a metronome. Mm-hmm. And the way that those are read scientifically and all that stuff is each swing is one back and forth motion. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We don't really know how they played, but it's kind of cool to think to get to have um, speeds that Bach might have played in and to play his music in those slower speeds. And it, it sounds great. I was playing that stuff on organ, like some of the well tempered Vera and stuff, um, fugues. And when the slower tempo, you you can control the, you can control so much more in the mm-hmm. notes, and it actually makes it harder. If you're playing a fugue like da 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 da, that's the theme. So then it'll come back in all the different voices. But in that slow tempo, you could play it like, bam 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 ba da dun dun dun. Uh, so you, you you control when the note stops. You know what I mean? Yeah. So every time that that melody comes back, that theme, and even if you're playing it in all your in these crazy four voice fugues, you have to control the those notes to be that same articulation. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what the fun and the challenge of it. Mm. I don't know if it's fun, but that's the challenge of. <laughs> Playing to you, Bach, it might be fun. Bach fugues is to try to con- <laughs> make sure all the articulations are the same, even if you have other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, slowing down isn't always easier because now there's more gap mm-hmm. in between the notes, which means you have to have better timing and pacing within your brain of knowing how to be on the beat. It's a different type of challenge. Yeah. You know, you don't have to hit the notes as fast, but now you have to think about the in-between. You don't have much, you have too much time for more room for error. Yeah, that's interesting. I always wondered that, how they knew the exact tempo to play at 400 years ago to now, or even Everything the you've been told, it's all lies. <laughs> even the tuning. It's all lies. Like 440 <laughs> standard, Yeah. A, you know? Like, I have heard, and you would know more about this, like 442, 438. Yeah. Well, the consensus is that in Baroque times, they played lo- in lower pitch. Like, Baroque's pitch is kind of like around 415 for the A. Oh, my God. That's really low. So I, I don't know if they're basing that on anything. I, I think it's a lot of the stuff, it's just musicologists and stuff come up with these ideas and then it just becomes standard to us and that's what it's we... It's weird. That's the only time that like hertz, frequency, and pitch are not actually all the same thing is when people decide to change them because I believe true A 
um, in hertz, if you were to actually measure it, it would be 440. Okay. And when you drop it and it's arbitrary and you say, like, that's still A because you decided that that pitch is still A. When If you were to measure it out, now those cycles per second is now 415. It's no longer that 440. And now it's not 440 hertz. You're playing A. Like, oh, we're playing A 415. So you, like, attach your own arbitrary note to it. I think that's a lot of things that we have to understand because for us to understand things, we have to apply arbitrary. I mean, we came up with A. A is not in nature. I mean, we we assigned that A was whatever it is. So, I mean, it's really just like mankind (laughs) assigning a a name or to help understand it. We're assigning a letter to a number we can measure. Like you can take a microphone and then attach... um, instruments to it to measure the frequency response and you can measure like oh that sound is at 440 hertz but then when you get to the 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 notes that's when it becomes that human touch where we like well let's call that an a Mm -hmm. and then you know you double it and that's the next a octave you know at 880 you know it's uh you double it again at 1760 that's the next a but now that you you know want to call a 438 now you have to drop all those down it's not the same as it was it's very fascinating i don't know it's interesting yeah i usually don't think about music like that yeah i think of more of in like practical terms yeah like i don't think about oh a should be 458 or whatever but i don't know i mean some people think differently more mathematically i i just don't like math and numbers and Mm -hmm. i i had a harpsichord for a while and i was trying to tune it and that was all mathematical and ratios and stuff like that Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that stuff just doesn't, I just want to play, <laughs> you know, like I just want to, you learn so much by just playing. But it's interesting how to get to playing, like the math yeah. has to be sound. Like for a guitar to sound right, it ha- like an electric guitar, it has to have the right intonation, it has to have the right distance of each fret based on that distance between the nut and the bridge. Mm-hmm. And that halfway point, the 12th fret is where the harmonic is. And you have halfway between that. And so like, because... Pitch is related to sound, and sound is a very physics-based thing. You almost need, like, that foundation for you to do all the wacky stuff. Like, once you have that clean foundation of, like, the guitar needs to be able to plug into a cable, plug into an amp, and that's all, you know, electrical engineering and and science and woodworking. There's a lot of math to get the numbers right. Once you have those, then you, the artist, can just have at it. You can do whatever you want with it. You can down-tune. You can do all these things. But you only can down tune because you know that machine head works properly with its tension. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. like you kind of need both. Like I mean, I wasn't knocking. It. I no, just I know, don't, but I don't think of it that way. No, like, a lot of people are have that same you know thought, and I have it too. But what I've learned over the last you know decade of, of so of doing this is how strange and important the relationship is. Just like fifty mm-hmm. fifty of like pure creativity and pure science, and it's something I believe is very important within the world of like education. How in education, and you know this going through music, they'll focus a lot more on science and math and language and humanities. And when it gets to the arts or music, they're kind of like, well, it's not as important. It's like, well, it is though. And you mm-hmm. know, I've said this a lot of times on and off the mic, and it's, you know, what what does that electrical engineer when he comes home from a nice, you know, good white-collar job and he's driving home in his Tesla, what is he doing? He's listening to music. And that music takes someone like you 
to play it and take someone like me, an engineer, to capture it and properly mm-hmm. put it back through someone's sound system a thousand miles away. And if they're not listening to music, they'll listen to a podcast. And guess what a podcast takes? It takes microphones. It takes someone who went to school for these things or, or at least has a lot of experience with it to, mm-hmm. to harness it and properly put it on to these streaming services so you can properly listen back to it. It's not distorting. It's not too quiet. It's not overcompressed. It's not panning too much. It doesn't have too much uh, electrical information because they have better cables and the right microphones. Like These are all things that I think are overlooked because when they're done right, which they normally are, you don't know about them. When things are done well, you don't notice. You know, mm-hmm. when a doctor does a good job on a surgery, you don't see scars everywhere. You know, <laughs> like these are these are when a dentist does a good job, your teeth look fine. You wouldn't be like, oh man, you, you shouldn't see those things. And when a musician like yourself plays well in an orchestra, it should sound fluent, perfect, smooth from start to finish, and no mm-hmm. one's gonna notice a hiccup. Especially like, do you ever find yourself being able to hide behind mess ups with eighty people around you? No. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. But I don't know, for some reason lately, I just don't really make, I don't want to say I don't make mistakes, but I don't like, I can focus enough where I just read the music and don't play in wrong spots. Mm-hmm. And I might, you know, play a little hit and note, a little out of tune or make a little scratch or something. But for the most part, I can focus and get through a piece and not have a wrong entrance. Mm-hmm. And last week in Kalamazoo, I got bumped up to principal and nice. we were playing Bartok. Uh, the Bartok Divertimento, and there's... um Never heard of that in my life. <laughs> well, it's uh, this uh, Hungarian composer. I think he's Hungarian. Maybe not Hungarian, but Bella Bartok. Great composer. He's like, he has some crazy music, but um, there's a string quintet, and there's solos scattered throughout the, the piece. So I was sitting right in front of the conductor, probably like this close, with the, there was the viola, the cello, me, and then the two violins. And I've never sat like that close to the conductor for. So it was a learning curve for mm-hmm. sure. But I I nailed it and it was fine. But it was a little nerve wracking because, I mean, those people play up there, those other string players play up there all the time. Mm-hmm. But for me, I always sit in the back, you know, the your, back of your the class. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was kind cool. of forgotten. It's the low foundation that's like sometimes hard to hear. Yeah. Sometimes hard to distinguish the notes that they're playing. But when they're not there, you notice it. It's a very yeah. interesting phenomenon. Like you were saying, they're kind of the unsung heroes. Always. The <laughs> Always. I also wanted to add, you're a creative person, but I've also noticed you have a knack for the the numbers and the the math mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. like, the science stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like both equally, mm-hmm. and I appreciate both equally because I know, I mean, in theory, you, you literally need both equally. Like to express yourself and show the world, you need an engineer who designs the microphone. Mm-hmm. You know, the math has to be sound for this cable to f- properly flip its polarity to carry this low voltage across it without it taking in a bunch of signals. Like, there's so much science in creativity and vice versa. Or getting shocked through the mic. Yeah, that. That would um, suck. Having these lights on. <laughs> I mean, you need, I mean, think about this bread, which we haven't spoke about yet. Let's talk about this bread. Okay. It's a Let chemistry experience, you know, or experiment, right? And you have to have, that's that's science. You need to have it all done right. Otherwise, it won't turn out this way if you don't get the ratios and the temperature right. But it's really good. This bread, <laughs> I keep eating it. It's chewing it, chewing on the mic. Want to tell us about this bread? What is it? Yeah, this is uh, some sourdough bread I made. And it's got, um... <laughs> sorry. Okay. <laughs> this is a whole nother avenue we could talk about with mm-hmm. the food. 
I've always been into cooking and I've had a lot of free time lately and I've just been working on working through some cookbooks and cooking a lot. So I've been working through an Indian cookbook and an Italian cookbook and then just whatever else, some bread. But um, for the Indian food, they have this these flatbreads called roti and it uses this whole wheat flour. So this bread, this um, sourdough bread has 40% roti flour in it and then it has the rest um, white flour. But the roti flour, they, they grind it real fine because you have to be able to eat with one hand technically in India because the left hand's used for uh, dirty stuff, you know, like. I know what you're saying. You know, I, I want, I want so that, that's their culture. Like wiping your butt. Yeah. Yeah. So they use the right hand. So you have to be able to tear the bread with your one hand. So mm-hmm. it's real soft flour. But when they grind it like that, it makes it sweeter. So it gives the bread a sweet taste. Mm. And you can buy a whole big bag of it from the Indian grocery for I don't know, ten bucks. It's awesome. A sweet taste with a sweet taste without adding sugar. Right. Which is great. And then this was an experiment to bring over today. Um, I've been trying to accent food with Indian spices, but in a subtle way that you wouldn't be able to pinpoint that, oh, this tastes like Indian food. Yeah. So yeah, this has some uh um Ajwan seeds in it. Mm. This is what they use in they make flatbreads with this with these seeds, but they also use that flavoring in samosas. I don't know if you've ever had a samosa. Make the drink? That's a mimosa. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're they're little fried, um, they're fried things with like potato fillings, potato filling. Possibly. You've probably had them before. Possibly, yeah. But it's a spice they use. It's great. Yeah, so the sourdough thing, I've been, I worked through a book, a sourdough book and made all the recipes. Mm -hmm. And then I took, got this other book called Tartine by this guy who owns Tartine Bakery in California. And I took both those methods and I took what I liked from both of them and kind of made my own approach. Yeah. And it's been working great. I've I've had consistent loaves, you know, every time I cook. And it's just, it's become a second nature thing. I can just make sourdough bread now. They're great. All the ones you've brought over the last couple months have been delicious. That one, With we the had the cheese and, the cheese and salami inside of it was unreal. <laughs> Dangerous, and it was like fresh and moist. Oh man, that was good. It's um, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I like this bread. I don't eat bread often at all, and this is the type of bread I could eat and uh, not be so worried about what's inside of it or what it's gonna do to my body. You know, it's supposed to be healthier for you because the um, the fermentation process breaks down some of the gluten and all that stuff. Yeah, so it's easier to digest, and the vitamins are more bioavailable. I can tell when I eat it. It I definitely feel that natural like bloat you get when you just consume, you know, there's there's carbohydrates in there, but it's not mm-hmm. I don't feel as bad. You don't feel as bogged down, you don't feel as sluggish, you don't feel yeah. as bloated, you know. Well that feel, bread you get from the store, that's crap. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's <laughs> terrible bread. No, this is very different and it tastes so fresh and very airy, like very fluffy. Mm-hmm. Like you you can taste what you're saying, but then there's a lot of like room for just like it just breathes a lot better. It's not as like compact with sugar and and flour, and it's just different. Yeah, I've been taking the, this basic dough and using it for experiments. Like I've been making um, sourdough focaccia bread. Then that's it's just um, you just cook it with olive oil, and then you could add anything to it. Spices. Mm. I really like adding rosemary to it mm. with some olive oil and some salt. What about pizza? Have you made pizza with it? Yeah, I made a pizza with this with the same dough. It's different than what you get at the the regular pizza place, but it's good. 
mm. making a pizza sauce and oh man i love cooking too yeah and it's great when friends do it like if you have your style and things you hone in on and then other people do stuff and just sharing it like i've been making a lot of these gluten-free cookies with like 100 percent cacao in them and they're amazing and it's been cool to like share those with people and, and like last night brian you know smoked um this wild alaskan salmon for like four hours he did like a natural honey brown sugar glaze on it it was amazing yeah that sounds and awesome i was thinking of your bread and then we had this cheese and i was just like you combine <laughs> everyone's skill set and like what they've been doing and you put it together like you top it off with homemade cold brew coffee with a homemade gluten-free vegan 100 cacao ch- cookie with homemade bread and you know homemade smoked salmon and mm-hmm. just all this stuff it's it's nice it's nice to be able to share that and try these new things and when things are really well made with good ingredients from scratch it's a different ball game yeah and most of the time it's cheaper it's really just the effort like you got to put in the time but it's not yeah a more expensive thing it takes two days because i don't have my sourdough starter out on the counter at room temperature i keep it stored in the fridge so i have to take out a tablespoon and then feed it and let it sit for 24 hours to get active do you ever name it no that'd be too weird But people come up with pretty creative names for those things. Do they really? I was being goofy, sarcastic, but people, some people, people name, name them. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's a living thing that you've been cultivating, yeah, and taking some, care of. Some people name like their instruments. That would be just too weird for me. You know, I tried that and it just didn't work. It's weird, right? I also have a lot of instruments, and I was just kind of like, <laughs> people have asked, like, "What do you name?" It's like honestly, I tried it. I didn't. I don't. Not. I don't really name. I don't really name anything. Yeah. Um. Yeah. My cat doesn't even have a name. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say, like you know, inanimate objects I don't name, and you just named a living thing. Yeah, uh, the cat has a name, but for a while it didn't have a name. <laughs> I just couldn't think of a name for it. I kind of inherited the cat from my brother because it ran away, and then I got it back in the house a year later or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, what is your cat's name? Jane Doe. Jane Doe. My aunt came up with the idea to call it Jane Doe. Oh, I get it. But I just said it fast. Yeah, like. I don't know. Yeah. A per- Japanese person or something. Jane, Jane Doe. Doe. Jane Doe. She likes it. She responded to it. So <laughs> that's her name now. That's a funny name, Jane Doe, when you say it fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Animal names are weird. Sometimes they're like just named after a person, which is kind of the weirdest Bob. one. Bob. Yeah. Name it Tim, <laughs> you know, Doug. You're just like, oh, that's an interesting thing. But then sometimes it's extreme and it's just really obscure things. Like, I don't know. I kind of like Bo, you know, the dog here. That's it. Good middle ground. Yeah. But it seems like two syllables is the best place to go with the dog because of like the way you can go up in pitch and down in pitch, I think helps with them when you have two syllables versus like, like when we say Bo, we don't go Bo. We go like Bo or Bo. Like we like always add two syllables and like stretch it out. And he responds to that way better than just like Bo, like a dart. It's interesting. Pitch is fascinating across all species. You know, like humans, we found a way to, as always, to manipulate the environment and take objects to create more melodic pitch-related instruments, but animals do it all the time. You just sit there and look at your dog or your cat and the way they're observing the world and taking it in and figuring out how to navigate just based on pitch and rhythm. And it's no wonder that if you were just to up the way that their mind works, they would go to places to sit around and just make music, record it, and then listen back to it. You know. It makes me laugh because I'll, sometimes I'll practice with my door open and my dog will sit there 
and I'm like practicing Indian singing and I'm going, uh, <laughs> he's supposed to be thinking, what the hell is he doing? He's probably learning a lot from it. He's probably taking in so much information, you know, different pitches and it's, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's a really cool thing because I'm sure you've realized this with how much, um, training you've done with Indian music the similarities and the differences in cultures, but the overall similarity, like we have pitch and mm-hmm. rhythm. Yeah. Now how we attack them and how we put them together and the way we design something from it is going to vary, but at the, the core value of it is Yeah, that's exactly rhythm. it. It's the same notes and the same stuff, but how they approach it is different than mm-hmm. Western music, which is, I don't know, it's just so cool. But we do that with food. Like we have a lot of similar foods, but because, like similar spices, but the way you approach them, the combination, like... Garlic and ginger and cilantro is in other places of this world, you know, whether it was brought there or not, Mm -hmm. but they still use it. And then, but how you combine them, how much of the ratio inside that sauce, what do you call that sauce? What's its foundation of the sauce? Is it this? Is it that? There, it's pretty interesting to see how many similarities they are. And it feels like the one thing that really gets everyone together is music and food. Yeah. Right? I love them both. It's like the one thing people... (laughs) No matter how much you love it or don't, you're going to connect. You're going to enjoy it somehow. Yeah. Music and food. I love bringing food over here and sharing it with you guys because otherwise I'm just eating it at home. Like <laughs> maybe my roommates will try it, but I don't know. It's just cool to, to share it and get your opinions. And mm-hmm. No, it's it's dangerous. The spread's dangerous. What I, I was saying before, when we were talking before, dude, we should start a bakery restaurant where everything's sourdough bread because I've been making um, sandwich loaves. With that, mm-hmm. I also made like a hoagie roll, ha- hamburger, hot dog buns and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have like a, a pizzeria, Chicago style food place. Yeah. But everything's sourdough. I wish we had like a million dollars to just start yeah. this business. Someone's probably going to steal the idea now. The thing is it can be a coffee shop too. Yeah, exactly. We can sell great roasted, you know, in-house coffee. Yeah, coffee shop, bakery. Um, Bookstore, record store. Maybe. On a, <laughs> maybe in a separate building. I've had this dream of having like a bookstore, record store, coffee shop, bakery, like all in one. That'd like, be badass. Like you get your bread and your coffee and you're walking around like looking at records and then you pick it out and you sit down and you can like read a book and put your record, test it out on like a hi-fi system in the back while you're drinking your nice coffee that was made in-house with bread made in-house. Yeah, that'd be pretty pleasant. That'd right? be a pleasant time. Right. With a pool table in the back, you know, like just <laughs> everything that makes life fun in one Place. We would need some kind of alcohol. We can have alcohol, homemade Someone, kombucha. Trevor makes homemade kombucha. Yeah, some homemade beer or something. Homemade beer and wine. A brewery. Yeah, distillery. Maybe get some bourbon and scotch <laughs> in there. I guess you can't have scotch. Wouldn't it have to be from Scotland to be scotch? Oh, you can make scotch if you want. I thought that's like the whole thing is it's like from well, Scotland. Well, it wouldn't be scotch, but <laughs> I don't know. You can make do it if you want. I just want to put everything delicious into one place. That would be cool. Um, I think people would go. Yeah, I just, like I said, maybe we just need a million dollars. Anybody out there listening that likes our idea, that trusts us and wants to invest a million dollars into this idea, let us know and we'll make it happen. I promise you it'll be great. I mean, that bread, I think you could sell that bread as is. Yeah, no, it's great. And it's not that expensive to make at all. No. Like, what does it cost to make that whole loaf? Um, It's 1,000 grams of flour, 800 grams of water, some salt, and some of the sourdough starter. So like a couple, like a dollar fifty. I yeah, I don't really know. I never really did the math. It sounds like it's about a dollar a loaf. Yeah, probably because that all that is not expensive at all. It's a little time consuming. That's the problem. Is the time? It takes longer than 
quick wa- quick rise bread, mm-hmm. but the um, the effort is worth it. I think it's way better. Have you ever tried making uh, like a gluten free one? No, no. I wonder what that would be like if you used like a oat flour, coconut flour instead of flour. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if it would rise because right some you need to have the gluten to mm-hmm. to have the the web structure in the bread. Sure. It probably would just be a completely different entity. I mean, I've made banana bread before, and that, I mean, that has flour in it, though. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know, man. Well, it, it, it. It's definitely different, because I've been baking, you know, your flour, butter, egg, sugar cookies for a long time, your standard cookie, mm-hmm. and then I've been making these gluten-free vegan ones, and their consistency is very different. At first, it was hard to tell if it was baking properly. Was it cooked? They don't brown the same way. They don't spread the same way. They don't even have the same structure when they're warm and they're done. A normal cookie, you can just take off the sheet and kind of eat it kind of warm. This one, it'll fall apart. You need to like almost let it get borderline to room temperature before you can like pick it up and eat it without it falling apart because it has okay. a different binding. It's just not – it doesn't bind as well. But when you eat it, it tastes just as good if not better. And better – I mean it's subjective. It tastes better because I feel like you feel better mm-hmm. when you have it. You get the sweet, savory consistency of a cookie. So you get to please, you know, those uh, sensations you need in your brain while you're having a dessert, like what you're looking for as a person. But you have none of the drawbacks. You don't feel bad. Your stomach doesn't hurt. You don't feel sluggish. You don't feel wired because there's not a ton of sugar in it. It's kind of like a nice balance. And That's part of the fun though. It is until, like, <laughs> you make cookies and you want to have a dessert, right, every couple of days. You can't just be eating cookies and cake all the time. They're like, you can, but it has drawbacks. Whereas these cookies, there's, like, no drawbacks. There, there's nothing in them that's even remotely bad for you. Mm-hmm. It's all natural things that have been broken up, combined together. There's no sugar. There's no gluten. And there's no milk. And there's no eggs. Not that there's anything wrong with milk and eggs, but... I don't know. There's just none of it. So it's a completely different experience. More nutty, more earthly tasting, probably because the almond milk, coconut oil. But uh, I like them a lot. Just like how I like this bread. It's very different from like bread you get with your burger, you know? Mm-hmm. In fact, that'd be interesting to make like a burger bun type thing. Try burgers with this. Yeah, I've done that. Have you? I've used the bread as um, for a burger, which was awesome. And for sandwiches, it's really good. But I've also made like a burger bun. Mm-hmm. Like I said, a hot dog bun, yeah. um, a hoagie roll. That hoagie roll was awesome. Mm. A sandwich roll. Yeah. <sighs> Love a good sandwich. We got to make a sandwich with this. When we smoke a bunch of like good meat, we're getting a smoker. Okay. And we'll get some really nice cheese. Oh, man, that'll be good. Maybe make a nice like aioli, like from scratch, something to, like, you know, butter up the bread with. Yeah. Something spicy. And then- Can you even put- make your own mayo. Uh, own mayo. Something to like kind of go along with the whole we're making it from scratch concept. Yeah. And then have it on that bread. Oh. Yeah, it's been so cool, like, hearing your guys' food projects, too. And everyone's, everyone's been cooking from home. I mean, forced to by COVID, but also fell, in, fell back in love with mm-hmm. or in love with cooking from home, the process, the balance, learning, like, someone else is making something. Oh, what are you making? Like, learning from what they did. Yeah. You're making something. Oh, what'd you do? Like, I got into these gluten-free vegan cookies because... We're trapped inside, and I can make cookies all day, but it's like, come on, we're adults. I can't just be eating these chocolate chip cookies all yeah. day. <laughs> so I figured out a better method, and everyone was a little standoffish at first, to be honest. They're kind of like, because those are trigger words, right? You hear gluten-free vegan, you're like, oh, my God, here we go. Some some hip thing, some expensive, you know, whatever. Yeah. And 
everyone started liking them and feeling better having two or three of them and you feel fine. You don't feel like, oh, man, I had so much sugar. I feel like kind of like all that flour. I don't know. It's when you – it sounds like ridiculous, but when you try it, you're like, oh, this is better. Just like you feel with this bread. Mm-hmm. You just know. It's like it, you don't feel as bad. You feel better, taste better. Um, it's cleaner feeling in your mouth and in your stomach, you know. You can digest it easier. It's less ingredients. Four ingredients, right? Yeah. Water, salt, flour, yeah, and uh, starter. Yeah, the yeast. The yeast, so four things. Mm-hmm. How long does it last? There's no preservatives, so how long do you think it lasts? Uh, it, it actually lasts for a while because of um, the acid in it from the fermentation. Mm-hmm. So usually it'll last for a week. Yeah. That's I mean, I might get start to get stale, but if you just toss it in the toaster oven for five minutes, it yeah. freshens back up. And, and why would you need bread for longer than a week anyway? Yeah. Usually when I make it, I'll eat like half a loaf at once because mm-hmm. it's just so good. It's yeah. hard to stop. Yeah. I could see that. I have a, I keep looking at it. I'm like, oh man. Um, I want to segue to this book, but before we do that, I wanted to plug this unique art. And this is really unique art because it's my family's art and it goes back a long ways. Uh, the top two pieces are things that my grandmother made, Rosemary Bauer, and she's a really great artist and I'm fortunate enough to have some of her work. And she always used to make artwork for people in the family. That was like her way of making gifts or giving back. And this was, <clears throat> excuse me, this one on the top left is a really cool like scenic farm painting, but on a log, a tree log that I believe is a tree cut down in my backyard that my grandpa cut down. So it's pretty sweet. And then the other one is just on canvas with a frame, another scenic one. She did a lot of scenery and they're both kind of like a black and white brown look. And then the bottom one is from her brother, um, Cole, Bob Cole, and he made these two. So they're both kind of artists in their own way, and I think the deer one is quite old. I think they might be from, like, the 30s or 40s. The other ones are probably from the 50s. They both painted and did artwork from the 1940s all the way up to, like, the till my grandma passed away, to, like, 50, 60 years they did work. And they're both not, um, you know, with us anymore. And this artwork's just been around in my room in my house for a long time. And I just felt like sharing it and telling the world that they were artists and they made really cool work. And it's been, you know, not for for profit or around in in coffee shops or galleries or on Instagram, but living in the memory of family and appreciating artwork. So that's what I have up. So you can't find this anywhere, but it exists here. You should uh, start a website. I should. I have a lot of cool stuff that those those are really cool. They what are, was the one in the top right here? That's my grandma's top right one, yeah. Okay. I like her style. Yeah, she was really good and she really honed in. She started when she was, I believe, like thirteen or fourteen. I think I asked my mom recently the best era of her abilities and they said like the nineteen seventies. So she would have been like in her forties, so probably had thirty years of experience at that point. And then, then it gets to a certain point when you get way older. And it starts to decline because of your motor skills, your eyes, your brain cognition, like mm-hmm. understanding how to put stuff together and how your brain works will decline with age. So there's like a, a peak of people's abilities with art. And I guess it seems to be like after 20 to 30 years of experience, which makes sense. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's cool. And the thing is, I I don't know how I feel about putting stuff online per se, like permanently, because it's like theirs and they didn't give All right, permission. Okay. Like this feels fine to me because it's like it's been my possession for a while i'm like playing um no paying homage to them and like respecting their abilities and you know i don't know it's cool but anyway 
So that's what's been on the backdrop this whole time. If you are interested in what it is, that's what it is. But you'll probably not find it anywhere on the internet or for sale ever. <laughs> so don't ask. Um, but on to <laughs> so don't ask. So don't ask about <laughs> it. On to Jason's book. What are you going to call this book? Oh, uh, well, this is this is the sitar book I put together. Mm-hmm. I'm weird, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I like Indian music. You're not. You're not weird, Jason. You're unique. And I relate because, like what you were saying earlier when you are like, you know, I just liked... It's just an interest. Interest, organizing things, understanding yeah. how they work front, back, side to side, top down, middle out. That's, um, I think it's a good quality. I think that's a quality that leads to very important, and this is me saying it to you and I could say because I'm an outside perspective person on you. It's what leads to innovation. It's what leads to new ideas. It's what leads to new concepts. If you stay within the realm of what we think is possible on any level. Mm-hmm. Then we, we grow stagnant. We don't come up with new ideas. We don't come up with lights and microphones and artwork and metalworking and soundproof foam and how to have a conversation in a language blocking us with plexiglass because of viruses. Like, these are very complicated. bread. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. I've been, you know, <laughs> half-vaxxed. <laughs> it's all crazy at this point. Yeah, but you is. know what I'm saying? Like, it takes... So, like, you having that, you going out of your way to learn the spectrum of the musical world from Western to Eastern music, probably other styles, writing a book or a, a memoir or a pamphlet or whatever it is you want to call this. It's it's more transcribed. I transcribed. Didn't, I didn't write it, but cer- certain things I had adjusted because some of the language was not clear. Right. So you transcribed. And what is it you're transcribing in this book? So there was this guy, <laughs> Sripad Banyo Padhaya. <laughs> That is a name. I'm That's looking name. at it, and it's hard. I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, but he wrote a bunch of Indian music books, and no one really knows who he is, and they just were dusty books on a shelf. And I was looking at this, stuff. I was like, holy crap, this is like the real deal, the rare stuff that... It seems like the Indian music now, the artists lost a lot of those like esoteric ways of playing that they did in the 1800s and the early 1900s and stuff, because... Since that tradition is all passed down from teacher to student, they, it was taboo to write things down. So not that there's anything wrong with learning that way, and that's really the only way you can – it's like learning a language. You can't learn language from a book. You have to hear the accent and the, the grammar and all that, the syntax and everything. But I think in the process of only teaching through face-to-face, you lose some kind of the theor- theoretical things, and it loses some of its um, – it loses something because yeah. th- there's there's a place for that theoretical stuff. Okay, so that guy wrote a bunch of Indian music books, and I took the all the books that he wrote, and I kind of compiled it into one book. So it's got like thirty ragas in it, and it's just full of like compositions and so you just, information you transcribed on each raga. it to English and a more like modern way of understanding it. It was already in English, but okay. I just went through and edited it and then just put it in a format that I liked now, have that I you, could use um, for my own personal practice. Have you ever reached out to, like, the publishers of who did his work and asked if they'd be interested in, like, looking at it or, or take, like, learning from it or maybe making a new rendition of it to make it simplified for people to understand? I actually emailed the publishers of this guy's book, his books, um... And they, because I wanted to know who he was, 
more information about him or if it's anyone from his family is alive. And I kind of hit a dead end, but they said, you know, if you ever have a book or you ever have something you want us to take a look at, you can. Have you sent but this to him? No. Why not? I don't know. Cause it's, it's taken from those different books, but then it's also this other guy's book that I used. So I don't know. This is an out of print book. I don't know if I'll get permission to, cause I, I really paraphrased what he wrote. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's diff- a different thing, but the compositions and stuff are from that book. I mean, as long as you cite everything and explain where you got it from and you don't claim it as your own, but more like you're a, a new 2021 messenger of this information to like try, try to transcribe it, simplify things, maybe reiterate things in a more clear manner based yeah. on your skill set and your experience. And you put that, you preface it like this is so-and-so's book that, and who you are. People do that stuff all the time. There's nothing... I mean, that's how, how much like that's how research papers are written. Like it's from other people's work, and you're compiling it. Look at how much music this is. Like it's each page is full. Yeah. But in the back, the stuff I was talking about. Those. Can es- you lift it up and kind of show the camera a little bit? Esoteric so things. Others can see it and listen to it or visualize it. Yeah. Not for sale. <laughs> but. <laughs> but like show, like open it up and uh, show how there's a lot. How many pages are there in there? I don't know. I didn't number the pages. Fifty. It just got exercises and all the different ragas and it's stuff. It's a lot. And you typed all that out? Yeah. A lot of it was when I didn't have a computer, so I had to go to the library <laughs> type it up. No one could disrespect you for this, Jason. You went to a library in this era. Like a monk. Like a monk and typed out Indian music to try to transcribe it to make it easier. Now, what was your goal? To make it easier for people to understand? I don't know what my goal was. It's just <laughs> something I wanted to do and like... I don't know if it's like, I don't want to make a joke about autism, but I don't know if it's like an autistic thing or I don't know why I did this. This is. I don't know, man. You're talking to the wrong person. I've heard that. I've heard that too much to where I'm just like, I think that it's a wrong way to look at things. I think it was just to learn the music. And this book was in a, the, the book that it originally was in was in kind of a crappy format. Yeah. And I just wanted it to be my own my own thing and this was a form of learning it too because i had to type all this out and yeah check if it was right and it would be considered like a new uh edited volume of the same thing like yeah sometimes new books come out and it's just the new version because they re-edited it made it better mm-hmm. cleaned it up you know cut the fat off of it added new information new things come to light that happens all the time like yeah you know there's always a new version of certain books a new volume and just uh, if i ever teach Indian music. Not that I'm at that level now, but this is something I could, you know, I could give a student a PDF of this or or something, you know. You should send it to that company. Because if you were to send it to them and they, and it was all properly, you know, legally and ethically approved, then it's something that you could teach. Yeah. I mean, I'd be worried to, I don't, I feel like I need like a lawyer and all that stuff to. You might. I don't know how, how good of an idea it is to just deal with some Indian publisher <laughs> You might not need a lawyer until, unless they go like, okay, we'll prove it. And then you can, you'll get paid some money and then you can use some of that money for the lawyer. Just make sure everything's good. Like, I don't know. Yeah. But I'm sure just asking and showing them it, like, it's not a big deal. I started taking lessons at this, um, with this guy in, um, California, Alam Khan. His dad is Ali Akbar Khan. He's a Sarod player. One of the, he's like the JS Bach of Indian music. Just a genius. Wait, wait. The jazz Bach. J.S. Bach. Jazz. 
How did you say it again? J.S. Bach. Jo- Johann Sebastian Bach. Oh, I thought you said the jazz Bach. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the guy was a genius. But I'm studying with, uh, not studying with like private lessons, but he has this Patreon where you can ask him questions and you do a Riaz session where you practice with him. Mm-hmm. But I sent him the book and. What do you say? Thought it was cool. That's it? You yeah. You thought it was cool? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> But it's just cool to be involved with other people in that community because I've kind of just learning indie music on my own in my practice room, you know. But to be mm-hmm. involved with people who are actually in it, it's been real inspiring. Yeah. You, you used to take lessons with someone on sitar, right? Yeah. There was this guy, Claire Monaco, that I studied with for a while. And then this other guy, Garav Mazamdar. He would travel to, from India every once in a while. But I stopped with those guys and I was just doing it on my own for mm-hmm. a long time. And... um yeah, now I started with that Patreon thing with that guy. Yeah. I'd like to get more involved with that school and just learn more because the only way to really learn this music is to you, – you have to have a teacher. You can't just learn it from a book. Yeah. Interesting. Well, why is that? Why is it – so, you know, like in, in the Western music, some people are just self-taught. Like I'm self-taught. No lessons, whatever. That's not a common thing in Indian music to just be self-taught. It's just a different style. It's not the same. Well, you can self-teach yourself. You can learn a lot on your own, but you just need to have that guidance and you need to – because, I mean, you're improvising a raga and you might play out of the raga. So then you need a teacher to tell you when you're right or wrong. Mm. And it, it's it's like learning a language. You can't learn a language just from reading a book. You have to hear – you know, you have to hear the language. Yeah. It's the, kind of the same thing. Like you can learn these compositions all you want without – but you, you need to at least listen to recordings and try mm-hmm. to mimic that accent and the flavor of the music. What if you're going for that like uh, experimental type where you're just like, I'm playing it how I want to play this thing? That's yeah, a valid approach too. I mean, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. What I've been doing a lot is transcribing Indian music recordings. There's this transcription software where you can slow it down and change the pitch. Mm. So I've been uh, changing the pitch to my vocal pitch and then like – it's so weird studying with this guy. It's just I'm starting to be able to do stuff I never thought I could. But just sit with the recording and be able to hear what the guy's, what the musician's doing and then transcribe it without even an instrument. I can just sing it and like figure out what he's doing. Mm-hmm. But it'd be cool to get to that point with other music. Like jazz, they, it's, and, and jazz that's big is transcribing solos and stuff. Hmm. It's interesting. I've always noticed that you've always been someone to play the written music or the within like like you said you gotta like learn from someone to follow the ragas and play within it do you ever write your own stuff or or take on other things and and kind of go outside of that that world of having that control of like reading the sheet music applying it to the instrument learning from someone how to fit within the raga do you ever just step outside that and make up jason music like make up whatever you want and not follow those types of guidelines or rules or Mm -hmm. restrictions I've been having that urge to, because with all the different stuff I'm doing, it'd be cool to make some kind of, you know, I could make, do like a band. Yeah. With the drums and all that stuff. Yeah. But I just haven't done it yet. I'd like, I like the, the, um, restriction. I don't hmm. know. I think eventually I will, but I just want to get better first. That's interesting. It's funny because when you mentioned earlier, you said like, oh yeah, you've always been someone to me, you said, who has a knack for like technical stuff. And it's, it's so funny because it's very true until it comes to like, all right, 
then now you play music. And as soon as I play music, like I don't want any rules. I don't want to follow anything. I want to play for as long as I want. I want to make up tunings, time signatures, keys, have a million instruments, have one, have lyrics that make no sense, no rhyming. But as soon as I'm outside of it to control everything, I want to follow the universal rules of, of science and, and data and information, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, you're almost like the opposite. <laughs> like you don't know anything about that. You don't care about it. But when you're playing your craft, like you want to follow those things that like fit within it. I wonder what, that's interesting. Two different approaches, both valid and both very much like we meet somewhere in the middle, but I've always noticed you've always like been excellent, like perfect at following direction. Perfect. Like Jason, it's going to be in this key, play these notes and you're like, boom, and you'll knock it out. And you'll even come up with ideas within that. But if I told you, when I've told you like, hey, Jason, improvise here, try it, you're just like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I used to be able to, but yeah. then I learned that it was hard to, and then it's it's like a whole mental block. It's a mental block. Interesting. But I I, I have a feeling with the Indian music, it's going to unlock that improvisational aspect. Mm-hmm. And if I can learn, because when I was in um, middle school and playing jazz and stuff, man, I had like, I could improvise no problem and play, but just, I, I just haven't worked out that part of my musicality recently. It's even part of the brain. Mm-hmm. It really is. That's interesting. But I'd like to take the energy from this, the improvisational aspect of this and apply it. Cause I mean, Bach used to improvise, you know, Beethoven used to improvise to, to really be able to improvise in a classical way, you know, take like figured bass, bass lines from those times. And like, I don't improvise like Bach. That'd be freaking cool. Yeah. That'd be hard to do, but not that I'm even close to that, but <laughs> like, you know, it's that, that kind of, that, that path that mm-hmm. way. And to be able to improvise in jazz and stuff, but there's just so much to learn. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you learn jazz? Like, all right, now <laughs> I want to now I want to learn it. jazz. Like, what do I have to? I mean, how do you? It's just so much. Yeah, you I mean you start somewhere and, and you take your path to it. There's so many different ways to play jazz, and mm-hmm. there's different classical approaches. You know, I bet you when you went from the Baroque period to the the Romantic period of like you know Beethoven, and then to like this 20th century experimental like a lot of orchestral you know conductors in the last hundred years got really experimental and started doing very unique stuff Mm -hmm. you got people even in it like um frank zappa doing pieces in this in the 80s you know it was very out there oh now that you mentioned it i i made a shrine of musicians that i like yeah so there's bach in the middle and then i have uh um charlie parker yeah you've heard of him the saxophone player of course yeah and frank zappa's up there yeah because he's awesome yeah and then I have um, Ala Udin Khan, who was the guy I'm studying with, his father, his grandfather. <laughs> Is that who, crazy to you? He was a saint musician. <laughs> like he was, he was like, he could play any instrument. He dedicated his whole life with like a fanatic religious fervor. I mean, he'd practice 15 hours a day, just crazy. But so he's on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Jaco Pistorius. Interesting. But if there is a way... To combine all those styles into one new style. That's you. That would be awesome. It sounds like what you're trying to do. Because I don't want it to be the classical, like a symphony, because I love rock music and drums and electric instruments, but if there's just some way to like bring it all together. But isn't that what Zappa was trying to do? Like he was doing something different. It was very experimental. Yeah, his music, I think, I mean, it's great, but I think he did that just to make money. Oh. But he composed like classical pieces and- Yeah. I watched a documentary on him, and he 
archived all his music and he has a basement studio and library of all his recordings. And he was like Vivaldi, man. He just, he just went composed and was a true artist, you know. But I've heard drawbacks from that. Um, people who are that obsessive with – it's one thing to be obsessive with work. It's another thing to be obsessive when your work is a creative outlet because it, I feel like it switches something in the brain. Now you're not just like a workaholic, but you have this addiction to something that gives you that spark, that 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 spark in your existence. So when you like put them together, you can neglect everything. Your your love life, your friends, your family, your pets, your own mm-hmm. health and hygiene. Um, and I've heard, you know, anecdotal stuff from people and other people that have dealt with people like him, for example, people who are just really immersed in it and they just neglect their kids, their wives, their girlfriends, what have you. Yeah. They're just not present. Like that one guy, if you're practicing for 15 hours a day, who are you ever going to be present yeah. for? There's something yourself? to be said for that. Because, I mean, of course, you'll be a great musician, but, yeah, your your personal life will definitely suffer. Yeah, you have no balance. I've kind of felt like the music, for me, has taken on a life of its own, and I'm just, like, holding on because I don't know where all this drive is coming from. I mean, like, why am I into, like, where is this coming from, this Indian yeah. music thing? It's just, like, the music wants to get out, mm-hmm. and it's just, I'm just kind of, like, I kind of remember when I was a kid and, like, before all this music stuff, and it's just, like... It's just taken on, you know, like I said, a life of its own. You were you were into and borderline obsessed with other things, probably. Yeah. And it manifests to this. You know, it's that's a it's a it's a creative drive that some people have and some people don't. Um, you know, I I think I have something like that in a different way. And it's nothing to be like embarrassed or ashamed of. I think the only thing to be aware of is be self aware of how to balance it with, you know, your mm-hmm. existence. Like in my eating and my exercising my hanging yeah. out with people yeah sometimes i just don't yeah it happens i just stay home it happens to people it happens to people who aren't doing something creative and they're just working 16 hours a day i think it's also you know? partly because of all the stuff going on now too i kind of just feel like screw it i just want to stay home the pandemic has not helped yeah <laughs> not at all yeah it's been challenging but what did you write this book out of the pandemic like this like you've been doing this last, sorry, you've been doing this this last year? No, this was, I did this a few years ago. You never showed me this until now? Just never came up. I don't know. Years? Oh, but man, I got to show you these exercises. Yeah. Okay. So what I was saying, the esoteric knowledge that these musicians don't know about, or it's, it's just not taught like this, but for, to play a full raga, there's these different sections and this book tells you what those sections are. And I, every teacher I've had, I've asked them what, what these are, and no one really knows. So I'm trying to piece together, like, the old way hmm. of playing a raga. Because, I mean, they would play back in the 1800s, 1900s. They play one raga for, like, the king or whatever, the Maharaja, for three hours. And they'd go through all the sections, and it was real technical. But now it's not like that because this stuff was lost because it wasn't taught. Mm. They just, they teach by playing. You don't ask questions. You don't ask theory. I mean, the guru-shisha relationship, which is the teacher-student relationship, I mean, the guru is like God. You know, you don't ask questions and you you touch their feet when you see them and all that stuff. So this this esoteric stuff was lost. So I'm trying to piece together how, I mean, I want to play the modern way, but I also want to know how to play the old way. Do you think, do you think, 
I wonder if they were aware it was being lost because they weren't documenting it well. They were just kind of being passed on, like, verbally. I'm not sure. I think it's just how it happened. Just how it happened. And I think a lot of those musicians in the older days, they were just, they were great musicians, but they might not have been the most educated. Yeah, not literate. Like, it's the kind of thing where they could play the hell out of music, but they just, they devoted their whole life to the music aspect. And you didn't go to college in in India in the 1900s. You know, you just... You would learn your craft, and that was it. You probably wouldn't do it now. Yeah. Right? I'm not sure. I wonder if they, I doubt there's college for sitar in there India. Is. You think so? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea. I'm just <laughs> I'm just guessing. So I want to try to piece together how to play an old raga, because there's this style called druped, mm-hmm. which is the old style where it's real slow and meditative, and it's, it's like sound yoga. It's called nod yoga, mm. which means sound yoga, and it's, it's like a way of meditating to be able to sit and... Just let a raga unfold. Yeah. And just for yourself, for your own personal, it's like a form of yoga. Mm-hmm. To be able to do that would be really cool. Um, but so, yeah, that's that part. But then it, it has these exercises. This, These are, they're called paltas. Mm-hmm. And they're melodic patterns that you play up and down the scale. So this is from like a Ravi Shankar book. Um, these are called mirkans. And... Um, it's just all the permutations of. Oh, that's the wrong part. I, I re edited it. This is my practice book. Mm. So it's all. For four notes, you have 24 possibilities. Mm-hmm. So it's just all the mathematical possibilities. But then you sing it up and down the scale. So, like, how I'll practice it. You have it on your phone? No, you use a drone to match your pitch. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll turn it low. Right now he's on his phone. Here it is. Put it closer to the microphone. Can you hear it? Is it too loud? You can put it closer, yeah. That's good. So that's the drone, and then you just... Sa, sa, re, ga, ma, re, sa, ga, ma, sa, ga, re, ma, ga, sa, re, ma, re, ga, sa, ma, ga, re, sa, ma... That's just one set. Those are all the permutations, and they end on the top note. Mm-hmm. Did you hear how all they added on ma? Mm-hmm. And then the next all end on ga, re, sa. So the next set is sa, sa, re, ma, ga, re, sa, ma, ga, sa, ma, re, ga, ma, sa, re, ga, re, ma, sa, ga, ma, re, sa, ga, sa, ga, ma, re, ga, sa, ma, re, sa, ma, ga, re, ma, sa, ga, re, ga, ma, sa, re, ma, ga, sa, re. Re ga ma sa ga re ma sa re ma ga sa ma re ga sa ga ma re sa ma ga re sa. And this is, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this like their, their version of solfege syllables? Yeah. Okay. So you do that those that pattern, but then you do it all the way up the scale and all the way down the scale. So then you go re re ga ma pa. Re, and you, you do that whole mm-hmm. thing and then you go ma ma da 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 All the, and it's just such an interesting way to practice scales. Yeah. And that teaches you how to, since I've been doing this, it's helped my ear. And I just feel like if you do 50 minutes of that, you're like, I don't know what it does to your brain. You get, you're it, like, it's, is that also related to that, that yoga you were talking about? If you yeah. Just, like you actually say that and like kind of meditate? Yeah. The, well, the ragas are supposed to, they're associated with certain times. Mm. So like there'll be morning ragas and afternoon ragas and evening ragas. And the way the notes are, are treated, it's supposed to have chakra effects and all that stuff and I, I don't know you know how much truth there is to it but do you think that's why the relationship to the guru is so 
in depth and holistic because they use their these things way more for like spirituality. It's not just like oh, let's just put on a record and listen to music. It's kind of embedded in there more in like in a spiritual culture to like use it for mindfulness or more mm-hmm. more insight, maybe more in depth meaning and not so you have more respect for because it, it has way more of a meaningful touch to it. I I think um, that the old ways are kind of changing, which mm. you know because. Progress is, you know, progress happens and it, things aren't so strict anymore. So I think a little bit of that aspect is kind of gone. Interesting. But it's still there. But most people don't use this music as a spiritual, mm. solely as just okay. a spiritual hobby. Right. But I mean, it's a cool way to approach music. It's yeah. a, a spiritual thing. I mean, you can do that with, with Western music too. And that's one of the most the therapeutic things I get out of doing like an afterglow's improvisational thing is it's very therapeutic to mm-hmm. put the brain through that stress of making up stuff on the spot with Yeah, there's zero something plans. about improvisation that's just mm-hmm. so beautiful. It's very therapeutic. It's, it's hard though. It's very hard. It's very well, challenging. It's, it's not hard to do, but it's hard to make it have that quality that it, it's good. That things fall together in the yeah, right place. Yeah, because I mean, you, you could know. just play and it might not mean anything but yeah i know it's it's a weird subtle thing it's super subtle but you know like it's subtle but when it's working you're like that that comes together yeah and when it's not working you're like oh there's too much clashing you know things are out of key things are out of time the the timbre of different structures is not aligning they're not completing each other they're not enhancing each other they're taking away from each other it's mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the balance of everything like you know if you put too much salt in this bread yeah, it would be, be that cool good. to bring that same idea to your everyday life. That's what I try to. To to just have it be free and spontaneous, and have that creative spark. Mm-hmm. I, I I that's been a goal this last year to give myself about f- four to six hours every evening of just like whatever happens happens, no rules, you know. And it's like if I'm going, if it's gonna be like a Saturday, I have nothing to do, no plans. If you're gonna take a, you know, a psychedelic drug, no plans on it, just. You know, be in a place and whatever happens, happens. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's, have you ever tried playing any of these things while on any type of psychedelic? Has that ever been something you've tried or done or are interested in? Um, <laughs> this is a long pause. I've, I've smoked a little pot and practiced it and it's a nice change of pace. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll be able to just close my eyes and you get into like a, cause I'm still able to play. Like I can still play this pattern. I mean. So the, those four-note patterns, you sing them, but then you also play them on – I've been playing it all on Serbahar, and you play it from one fret. I can get seven notes from one fret. Just yeah. Bah, you know, from – so you you play it by pulling the string, and it's just such a peaceful sound because you get all the microtones and the way it, it moves and everything. Uh-huh. And it's just therapeutic. Do you know the history of the sitar? Like why that shape? Why that – body why the the strings with all the overtones and where that came from the history of it vaguely but mm. i don't know i don't know the whys yeah i mean it used to be just an accompanying instrument and mm. it had some drone strings and you just kind of strummed away on it with yeah. a strap but it's not till pretty recently that it is what it what we know it as today because mm. i mean like ravi shankar and that guy ali akbar khan and aladdin khan they really created a new thing and there's different families of um, sitarists who did their own thing and made a, n- a new instrument. Yeah. But it wasn't a solo instrument at first. It was a um, accompanying instrument for vocalists. Okay. So w- w- is that music more vocal heavy? 
Well, the thing about Indian music is everything stems from the voice. Like most instrumentalists can sing well, and you should be able to sing everything you play. So, I mean, to just have that kind of vocal, those kind of vocal chops where you can just like, and sing what you play and to have that mind body connection to be able to hear and play. It's just, it's just amazing to me. And I want to take that same idea with Western music and go through all these patterns, but with Western solfege and Uh go through all the keys and really get your ear. Have you been working on that? I was trying to do like one day of this and then one day of that, but it was just too much. So I think (laughs) what I'm going to do first is go through it a bit in this style in Mm -hmm. Indian music. And then once I get a grasp of it, then transfer it over to Western music because for the Indian music, it's all, it's all in one key. Mm-hmm. It's all, you you pick what your sa is, which is your tonic. And that's, you know, for this, you have to find what your lowest note is. So sa, ni, ta, pa, ma, ma. So my... my you pick what your lowest note is, and then that's how you find your saw. So my saw is C sharp. So that's what the key the key of my voice. But in Western music, it gets pretty overwhelming pretty quick because, you know, you have the 12 keys. So to go through all these patterns and all 12 keys, I mean, that's a pretty huge task. Because I, I have these meerkat patterns, those four notes ones that I told you that mm-hmm. I was saying for you. But then there's this stuff called gutaba, and these are the same kind of idea, like... Sa re ga ma ga re ga ma re ga sa re ma ga re sa ma ga re sa re ga re sa ga re ma ga re sa, and then you go up and down the scale. But then to do that in Western music in all twelve keys, I have twenty patterns of those. It gets pretty it's, overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's the ticket to be able to combine them. Mm. And I mean, if if you go and have an ear like that where you can sing this stuff, I mean, that's like. And then I'm practicing singing like Bach. Cello yeah. suites and you know sol re si la si re si re sol or whatever it is and yeah I don't know it's just a way to the vocal practice is a way of combining it all. Is that something you're working on now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, are you gonna write it out and everything? What? Write out how to do that, how to connect them. Is that are you just gonna practice it? Or are you gonna actually type it out and like explain it to people? Just gonna practice it. Nice. I mean, you give this these patterns to people and tell them what you have to do with it, and then it's like, okay, see ya. <laughs> see ya in 10 <laughs> Unless years. Unless you were to teach it and you had a class. Yeah. I'd take your class. But I don't know. Like, some of these these patterns, this pattern here has 64 notes. Really? So to sing a 64-note pattern on each note of the scale, that's just so good for your, like, your memory. How does it have 64 notes in one scale? Well, it's because you, you take the, the four notes and you – you tie them all together. Oh, you just do different patterns of it? Yeah, this this term's called gutaba, and it means to sew or knit. Oh. And these patterns are, I got them from that, that old sitar book that no one cares or knows about. <laughs> yeah. And then on, on YouTube, I saw some guy had a similar pattern, and then what he did was took the mirror version of it. So, sa re ga, the mirror is ga re sa. Mm-hmm. So, one, two, three, three, two, one. Mm-hmm. So, you t- I, t- I did the, the inversion for all of them. That's how you get 64 notes, but I don't know. It's just so exciting to me that this is something new to take this these patterns like that and apply it to Western music. Um, I wonder if this has been attractive to you because of your yearning for, like, musical knowledge. Like, you, you did something for so long this way, and you wanted to see how the huge other part of the world was doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and you just kind of, like, got obsessed with it. 
Well, in, in a good a, way, you know. In high school, I, I heard some Ravi Shankar stuff. Ravi Shankar. Did, didn't you see him play? Yeah. Yeah. I saw him at Symphony Center. Yeah. And I just liked it. And then one day, out of the blue, I was like, I'm going to get a sitar. So I looked on Craigslist, and there happened to be one for sale. I remember that. I met him at the White Castle parking lot by Midway. <laughs> yeah, on 63rd and Cicero. Yeah. yeah. And got a sitar and then started taking lessons. And that was, yeah, that was like 2010 or 11. Some, yeah, something like that. I'm bad with dates. Okay. I remember that because you played sitar on the first Wilshire record, and that was 10 years ago. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. You know, I've always been attracted to it too, but it's daunting. Like, it's a whole nother world. Yeah. It's a whole It's so world. vast too. It's so vast. Because it's, since it's all based on Im- improvisation, it's just like the ocean or space, you know, the further you get out into this music, it's just like, holy crap, there's so much to learn. That's the beauty of it though. Yeah. That's what's cool about it. You just, any creative endeavor, whether it's cooking, culinary arts, you know, making coffee, cold brew or warm, roasting beans, writing out these things, mm-hmm. learning music, learning how to paint, you know, there's... It's kind of endless, and there yeah. there are rules and guidelines, but man, they're flexible and can mm-hmm. be broken and bent in every way possible. Um, that's what makes it great. It makes it so much fun to go down. It's a lifelong journey, and there's really no beginning and end. You just you pick it up and you go. You can have teachers, you can have degrees, you can have twenty years of experience, a hundred years of experience. You're still nowhere. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. still is endless. You know, spherical experience. I still feel like a beginner, to be honest. I I do as well in everything I do. (laughs) I can play some bass, but mostly I'm just like, there's so much to learn. (laughs) That's a good mindset, though, to know that, to be aware, like, all right, I know some stuff. Otherwise, I wouldn't be at the point to where I can learn this harder stuff. Yeah. But I'm like intermediate. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But you're not, you are relative to you, but to most people, I mean, you're not, you're, you're definitely an advanced proficient musician in a lot of instruments but you know you give yourself upright bass you've been playing that you know tens of thousands of hours for 20 years mm-hmm. you know you have jobs doing that. like now you're a principal bassist at Kalamazoo that was just a, a sub thing yeah. I'm, I'm a regular member but I'm not principal bass there mm-hmm. but the principal bass couldn't make it so they bumped me up it's still cool though yeah it was, that, it was a cool something. concert to play yeah when when do you uh, is there anything booked for that in the fall? Any of those concerts? Are they talking about it? They're planning every, all the orchestras I'm in. They're planning on doing summer stuff, and the hope and plan is to just start up in the fall like normal. Man, I'd love to go again. That'll be great. I hope everything gets back to normal. I miss playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I really hope it. I mean, I just miss it. I miss. Hey, it's Saturday. Let's go to yeah. the orchestra. Man, artists took. I mean, I, this was hard for everybody, but artists got the. Oh, the crap oh, yeah, under no. the stick, you know. It's been hard for everybody, but I can tell you this, being in my feet in both ponds, musicians, artists of any kind in that realm and anybody who, like in the service industry, anybody who's yeah. around those situations, like a bar or a club or a venue, yeah, all of that just hard. hit in the face with a ton of bricks. Yeah. And it's really messed up. And it's I hate that it's been very political, you know, political and politicized. And yeah, maybe we shouldn't get into all this. I, don't, I, don't, I feel like I don't want to offend anybody. Oh, screw them. What are they being offended for? <laughs> we have freedom of expression and speech in this country and on this planet. You know, we're just talking about what's really happening. Like, we're both people in that world. You played shows and suffered. I was playing shows, putting on shows, and mm-hmm. having people come in so they could make material to play shows. And that all fell apart completely. 90% wiped out instantly. So we do have the right to talk about this because it affected us directly. 
who better than us to, to talk about it. Um, you don't need someone who has a nice cushy job who just had to work at home and nothing changed for them to think they know what it's like or pretend like they know. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they do, but we are the right people to talk about this. I've learned so much about myself and people in this this last year. Like, I've I feel like I've, I'm a more world well rounded person now. Yeah. It's just things have have a different tone to them, and mm-hmm. I just appreciate things more and. I don't know, just able to let things roll off and I don't know. It's like the two paths you could choose with how serious this was. You can spiral out of control and be mad at everything or you can learn how to have more empathy and appreciate when you do have something. Yeah. Appreciate the fact that you got to play music, create art, and get paid for it and like have a career in it. You know, like that's an amazing thing. Yeah, I'll definitely never take it for granted now. No. Not that I did before, but there was times where I'd get gigs and be like, oh man, I just want to be home. Yeah, like I don't feel like doing that. And now I'm like (laughs) so happy to do anything. I'm different perspective on it for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Let me tell you some more about this book. Yeah, please do. So, okay, there's that Gutava thing. Mm -hmm. And then they're all about rhythm. So... There's this other book, and it you can figure out how to do three and four or five and four and all that stuff by the patterns. Yeah. So like how to do um, five and four beats, you'd have to take four beats and then you subdivide it by five. So like one two three four five one two three four five and then to get f- um, four five notes and four, then you'd take four groupings of those subdivisions. So. One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And like, they don't teach you how to do that in school. Uh-huh. Like how to, you know, how to do five and four and how to do three. It's just, it's mind boggling to me. Like all these different rhythms are um, seven and four, you know, seven and four, nine and four, five and two, 11 and four. And not that it's easy, but like to actually have it mapped out how to do it. Where do they get the numbers? Where, where do they not fall into... How we've fallen into the four, four, three, four, like with these nine and five and seven and it's it's like I said before they they approach music in a different way. It's all based on melodic and rhythmic variation. Mm-hmm. So that's how it developed. Not in like a harmonic Bach way where it's real complex harmonies and counterpoints. Yeah, but they delved into the rhythm and the, the melodic aspects. So rhythm literally has like a different meaning to them. Yeah, so fascinating. That's why it's so hard for yeah. us to like. And then here's the 72 scales. <laughs> but to learn, the ultimate goal would be to learn these scales, but somehow apply them to Western music and just like open up the language. Have you gotten to like a beginning stage of that yet? It's no. going to take a long time. Because <laughs> 72 <laughs> scales, holy crap, man. That's insane. I don't know how, what would be the most efficient way to do that. I don't know if it would be okay to just go through all 12 keys or maybe if I could just do it in one or two, like I think if I do it in C major and B B major, that'll that'll get all the note combinations. And if I do all seventy two scales, that'll be, I won't have to do it in each key. That's if, true. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I think that might be one way to approach it. But it's I have to get to the point where this isn't hard to do because if I'm sitting here trying to sing these scales real slow, because some of them are weird scales. Yeah. It's, it's just going to be really um, time-consuming and daunting. So if I get my voice good enough and my ear good enough to where this won't take too long, mm-hmm. I could go like through like two or three a day or something. But th- that's the end goal. And somehow to apply this, these all these different scales and make it 
um, cohesive with Western music and whether it's with a band or like composed or something, I don't know, something with it. Yeah. What's your ultimate goal with this? Like why do it? I think it's to create something new oh. that's never been done before. Have you looked into it? No one's ever done this before? Not like what I want to do, I don't think. Yeah, I've never heard of it ever. So <laughs> Because there's like fusion where it's in Indian music and Western music, mm-hmm. but it's still got the Indian music flavor. I want to do it like the cooking, like just a subtle, uh-huh. like, well, maybe that won't be subtle, but <laughs> to take the language of have, being able to play anything you want. Yeah. And taking the language from these different weird scales, but still make it Western music. Yeah. And not be like, sitar music, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's just an idea. I no, don't know I, if it'll I, ever happen. You should do it. I, I think I think it'll take you to new places musically. It might open up new doors. It's going to take a while. I mean, you have nothing but time, right? Yeah. We're all, you're 30 years old. Got nothing but time. Yeah. I think you're in the right place musically and experience-wise. I think you're in the right place because... You've been working with, in some capacity, Indian music for over a decade and Western music for over two decades. You know, it's a lot of time to find... And you've trained with different people. You've mm-hmm. listened to people. It's a serious thing. I mean, you've gone further into the culture with the food and the dishes. Like, you've been making a lot of Indian food, what, the last couple of years? Yeah. And all the stuff, stuff you showed me the last year have been amazing. Like, that, we had... What was it we had earlier? What was that? It's, uh, it's called dal. That's, like, their bread and butter staple if you have that doll it's it's um you boil lentils until they kind of fall apart like a, a soup yeah and then you just add a bunch of spices but it's um with rice it's a complete protein so you could actually live on that yeah no it's really good i've it's healthy i've had more indian food from you and in, in other situations especially as of late i've been falling in love with just Indian food and, and Asian food is, it's so good and for yeah. different reasons and not like it the classic. It such a wallop of flavor. That, that's a great way to put it. I was just going to get like, to like Whoa. the amount of <laughs> spices and seasoning and flavors. It's like nothing I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. It it makes other foods just kind of like, it just completely overshadows them. Yeah. Like a lot of Mexican dishes, you'll have like salt and cilantro and lime and some hot peppers. Maybe some other things, but like not that much. And it, yeah. know, it's been an Indian dishes. I'm just like, what? It, what else are we putting in here? There's like 18 things. In I this think thing. there's a lot of something. That, a lot that can be said for fusion food with Indian food. Like mm. I think Indian and Mexican would be awesome. Yeah, but just subtle. Subtle. Like it wouldn't taste like Indian food, but like add some of this. But isn't little... that what all food is? It's just been thousands of years of smaller, yeah, different incremental things coming in. Like I think I've heard this. Correct me if I'm wrong, or if anybody knows. A lot of certain hot foods and spices aren't native to certain areas, and they just were brought there mm-hmm. in the last couple hundred years. I think isn't that what it is with um, Indian food? Yeah, like that wasn't they didn't have hot peppers, you know, a couple thousand. I'm not years sure ago. what foods they had or didn't have, but the food that I've been making recently, I because they have little blurbs in the book about okay. each recipe and. Some of the stuff, like tomatoes and things, it's more recent additions. Yeah. Okay. So there's certain things, but you could say that about a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's different. Um, I think, like, avocados are not very common in certain, um, like, other Latin dishes, but more common in, like, Mexican ones. I know my brother's wife is from, her family's from Argentina, and I always just, like, every time she makes Argentinian dishes, there's, like, no heat, no spices, because they don't have hot peppers, apparently, in, at least in that region. So it's different flavors you use. There's just not heat to it. And I'm so used to that 
and I'm just like, oh, why don't we make it hot? And like, no, that's not how you make it. That's not like part of it. There's no okay. heat. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm like, oh, <laughs> all right. I didn't. Uh, it's just fascinating how that is. And Indian food, I don't know. The flavors, mm-hmm. it's very unique, very different, very healthy. Yeah. You know, very all those healthy. spices all have health benefits. And yeah. It's good. It's good for you. Quite like, healthy. My breakfast usually is some of that doll. I've been making that so much. And then some of the milk kefir, mm-hmm. like a piece of fruit, yeah. some rice. It's so good. Yeah. That, that's a special recipe that I can't say whose it is, but it's like a family <laughs> recipe that I got from somebody. And it it's just so cool that it has, you know, a history to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of different cultures. There's like, um, you know, I've talked with this a lot. I'll, I've talked this over a lot with certain people. Like when does a, when does it become like kind of risky in the exploitation of certain ethnicities or cultures or heritage? And I think it depends on the intent. Is it malicious? Are you, is there a power dynamic? Are you belittling it? Are you exploiting it for money? But man, when you're just in love with a food, a language, a style of music, a clothing, and you admire it and it's just to do it to do it and it has nothing to do with money and you're not exploiting it, you're not trying to sell it, you're not calling it your own, that's important. Mm -hmm. You're acknowledging what it is. There is nothing, that's all we've been. That's all we are. That's why we have all this different fashion, style, architecture, food, music, art, engineering. It's from all different countries from around the world from thousands and thousands of years. You can't, it's not, you're not exploiting anything if you do it with the right intention. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're so lucky right now to have all those, these different resources at our disposal. Like you could have like a Leonardo da Vinci if they went through everything and like learned everything. I mean, we have so many, so much knowledge to learn from. And if someone could take that and like apply it to making something new. Not that I'm, I'm not saying like, I'm like that kind of person, but just to take food. We, it's so easy now. You can just look up recipes on Google yeah. and get inspiration from this, from that, and just make your own completely new dish yeah. or style or whatever. Yeah. Or with the music, you know, create like something new. Cause yeah. like back, back before the internet, people had to go to library to learn knowledge and, now it's just everything's at your fingertips. Or had to be brought to you. Like if yeah. you were in a town when no one from the Middle East or from India or, or Thailand came in and started a restaurant, you didn't have that food. You had no idea it existed. Yeah. You never tried it. If someone could like go through and like learn a bunch of stuff online or whatever, it's just we have we have it so good. But yeah, it's just do. it's so much knowledge. It's going to take a lot to synthesize it and learn it. We don't know what to do with it. Yeah. You know, it, it some people get a little shaky with it and overwhelmed by it, but I embrace it. I think it's a beautiful thing to have this connection to different religions, cultures, people, ethnicities, heritage, races, all of it. It's a, I think it's a beautiful thing. And once you understand at the core that it's just time and geo- geographical placement is the only thing that's ever separated us from our skin color to our language to our uh, evolutionary looks of our body to how we handle things to our food to our palates – and you realize it's like, it's so simple. Like it gets very, very convoluted with war and religion and history and money and politics. Mm-hmm. But like at our core, it's like that person is just that way because they've been in India for, their family's been there for a thousand years. Like that's all, the only difference It's they are geographically placed at a certain latitude, longitude. They've been there for a certain duration. And that is the only difference between them and you and your beliefs and heritage and what you've been taught in the American education school system in the 1990s. Like, just time and place and that's it 
So we all love food. We all love connection. We all love love. We all want yeah. to feel those things. It's not as big of a deal. It's, it's, it gets inflated too much, you know? Dude, the 90s. <laughs> I was just a kid, but I like watching 90s movies and stuff. And, oh, man, it looked like such a great time. I miss the 90s. Bittersweet. I mean, great. Dude, I watched um, Waterworld the other day. Oh, my God. <laughs> that movie's so good. It was it's entertaining. Bad. It was entertaining. It's man. entertaining because it's so terrible. I was just laughing the whole time, and it just had that '90s thing to it. And it was that movie, awesome. Do you know the history of that movie? It's no. got such a funny story. So Kevin Costner was like huge at the time, right? He just did like Field of Dreams, Robin Hood. I think he did uh, on Netflix. They, it was all there was also um, Dances with Wolves. Dancing with Wolves, which was an awesome movie. Dancing with Wolves, Dances with Wolves, Field of Dreams, Robin Hood, and. I think the uh, the bodyguard with Whitney Houston. Okay, like huge movies. This guy was number one, right? <laughs> so I think he was like, oh, "I'm gonna make this big, like futuristic sci-fi action film, Waterworld," and it went way over budget because like I think it's expensive to just be always filming on the water. You had to build these elaborate sets, a lot of extras, <laughs> and I think they ran out of money. He started financing it himself, which is like a you know a big no-no in the film industry because you should never have your own money involved unless you own the production company, which I don't think he did. I think he just put his personal money into it. Thing tanked, flopped horribly at the box office, like did not do well at all on a high budget. And I don't know, kind of like, I feel like it messed up his career for a while, to be honest. But anyway, interesting story, interesting yeah. background. What a crazy movie. Yeah, it was just insane. The Smokers, it's such a ridiculous concept. <laughs> it was so corny and like the the humor that they had and the, I don't know, it was great. I loved it though. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But um, no, in the 90s was a great time, but we didn't have a, you know the the rights of women and LGBTQ and 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 black people is just not what it is now. Like that, it's a crazy thing. Like that was over twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. So so much has changed. Like nostalgic wise, as kids, like yeah, the nineties was great. But when you look at like you, you know, go micro or macro, and you get out of there, and you realize like, oh man, the nineties was a crazy time for okay. people's rights. You know, right? Like think about yeah, it. Like, I wasn't thinking of it like that. I was well, just thinking that, about like. No, I know. I, I kind of went way too in-depth about it. I, I did not have to go to that place. I just tend to go to that place. But yeah, like the music was great. The f- movies were... Yeah, the music was awesome. Well, that was a great time where digital technology finally got really good and analog technology finally was really good. Like both digital was finally getting better and analog was great. So the music world got really cool. Electric guitars, amplifiers honed in way better. Effects pedals got better. Styles and different techniques got better. Enough genres and things happen from the 60s, 70s, and 80s to create grunge, new wave meets indie rock meets experimental meets alt rock meets classic rock, making things like Nirvana and mm-hmm. Sonic Youth and Soundgarden and My Body Valentine, Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, I you love f- all those bands. Yeah, you all finally that, get enough of it to make that. A lot of the music I listen to is that all that stuff. Me too. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of that music, we all we grew up listening together mm-hmm. to that stuff, you know? And uh, it's, I mean, there's so many great bands now. And it's funny because a lot of the bands I hear now have so like revivals of that with like tinges of, of new like indie rock and like bedroom rock, which is like you're just recording it at your house. So it has a certain aesthetic and style to it, but it has a lot of that like new wave, punk, experimental, math rock, alt rock, you know, tweed pop, like all that kind of put together. What's tweed pop? Like early 90s, like kind of lo-fi, very poppy, slightly maybe off off beat a little bit. Like, you ever hear of Black Tambourine? Like no. A band from the East Coast in the 90s. Just, you know, remember the Swirlies? Yeah. Like a couple notches 
not as complicated as that. Like okay. further in the more simplistic fashion, like tweed pop. I don't know. There's so many subgenres and genres and these genres. It's kind of, I'll say them sometimes and people be like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, I realize that's such a really niche like <laughs> subgenre to tweed pop. Shoegazes too. Like we, you've heard of shoegaze, but I've said shoegaze to people and they're like, what? What's shoegaze? It's like, ah. Oh, yeah. I don't really know world. all the, those names and stuff. I just listen to the music. Uh, yeah. Not that there's, I don't know, anything wrong with that. It's yeah. just. You definitely didn't nerd out as much about it as like Jake and I did. I'd like to be into more modern music like you guys are. Yeah. You just know so many bands. Do you have Spotify? Yeah. I, I share your playlist. We have, I, I always make them and I'll just send it to you. Yeah, that'd be cool. And then it's great because you could listen to it. You know, if there's a hundred songs, you might like 20 of them, but now you, ha- you say you like that song, you go on, you find out their discography and you download that mm-hmm. and now you, such a great way to navigate and find like a new web of music. It's great. What I've realized about all music, but especially modern music, that's that's part of music history. You know, yeah. like classic rock and jazz and all it's all part of it's like Bach, you know, it's all part of the same thing. So to to absorb that stuff and yeah. maybe do something with this and make it more in a rock band type thing, but yeah. still make it I don't know, that'd be cool. Well you yeah, you can't have one without the other. It's you should love Bach. And 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 Beethoven and Mozart. Yeah, but that's not the end all be all. Not the end, that was hundreds of years ago. Like yeah. we're in a new place now, and you should love you know Pink Floyd. But like that was fifty years ago. Like the Beatles are great too, but time is going to keep moving whether you like it or not. The yeah. internet's going to keep progressing. These Spotify is going to keep making new algorithms to do new things, and YouTube's going to keep growing. And you either can stick your feet in the ground and be like, no, I only like classic rock, or you can just listen to all of it. Take a little bit from everything. There's so many good bands now that, like, a lot of people are um, they're finding a daunting task to, like, discover new music because there's so much of it. It's in abundance. It's all over the place. Millions of songs. Mm-hmm. But you do it just like how you did when you first started playing music because, you know, picking up that upright bass is probably daunting, knowing, like, there's all these possibilities. How do I do this? There's no frets. You hold it weird, but you just start. And before you know it, it's easier to go to the next thing, like, once you learn how these systems work and you find new music, you can keep going to the next one, find a similar band, Spotify, you know, iTunes, YouTube. These things have algorithms that are annoying, but sometimes they're amazing. They play in your favor and they'll start picking stuff yeah. that's related to what you like. I use Pandora. It's awesome. Pandora, same I thing. Pick, they all do it. I have like 30 or 40 different artists and it just, you can shuffle artists and yeah. it just shuffles through all these different musicians. It's and it shows so you like-minded stuff. Very yeah. similar taste. I've actually learned a, a lot of new music from that. Mm-hmm. Most people have. That's the beauty of it. Um, instead of complaining about them, not saying you are, but the general people, you hear a lot of old people like complaining about it. If you just learn slightly how it works and you put th- the time and effort into it, it's amazing how much more you can keep learning. And it just brings in new stuff. And you're never going to forget the old music. Go back to it when you want. You know, you put on Led Zeppelin too. you're going to know all those songs. You've heard it yeah. a million times. You don't need to keep playing it over and over again. There's other things out there. How does Robert Plant sing so high? <laughs> I can't even do it. I don't want to try. But you know what I mean? Though? Like, don't be stuck in the old ways. The old ways, then you're that person who's not adapting and learning and growing. And you can love that music and go back to it and find new different ways. Even, in fact, there were so many bands in the 70s you could spend a lifetime in the 70s trying to hear all the music that was just then. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much music out there. People have been making music forever. Um, I think I, it's great. I love all the, a lot of the new music that comes out. 
Not yeah. that I ha- I'm in a band or anything, but I think it's just important to be aware of what came before you and take what you like from it and yeah. br- put it in your own approach. Yeah. I but mean, I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, that's what you have to do when you play, you know, orchestral pieces. You're not mm-hmm. just reiterating what you see on sheet music. Yeah. I try to always in the orchestra to have a character or play with a sound, not yeah. just play neutral. Like, yeah. if it is it passionate? Is it sometimes you want to be a little aggressive? You know, sometimes the sound is that, that kind of sound, or does it is it light? Or what what aura are you trying to bring about? And it's almost like you're an actor. I mean, you you want to you have to overact in the music to make it come across to the audience. You know, if it's intense, if it's whatever. Yeah. It, sometimes I, it comes out naturally too. Yeah. Like it, you call it. I know what you mean by calling acting. I think someone listening would be like. So you're not being yourself when you're playing. It's like an actor is being a good actor is being like the best version of like their brain when they're acting. They're they are truly coming through. That we we call that act acting, like air quotes, like oh they're just acting. Mm-hmm. But really they're be they're that's their craft, that's their art. When you're playing music, what what's coming out? I know you use the metaphor like acting, but it's ooh Jason. Oh, I wasn't. I thought it was on silent. Yeah. That's fine. I'm kidding. I I leave my phone on silent forever. Like it's ne- no vibration, nothing. I think I turned it on because of the that tempura yeah. drone I played. But you know how you have like vibra- like vibrating right now. Oh yeah. I don't even do that. I do none. I don't want to know if someone's reaching out to me. I have to. I'll have to either be looking at it. Or I'll just have to get back to them. That's just yeah. the way it is. It's peaceful that way. I don't want interruptions in life. You know, just in any case when you're just hanging out with friends and you hear. Mm-mm. Yeah. You know? I don't know. Phones are distracting. I usually leave it in the car, but I wanted to show you that yeah. with the drone and the singing and everything. Does it ever get too hot in the car and get, like, ruined? Your My phone? phone? Yeah. Never thought about it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I do with my phone. I don't know. Maybe I'll leave it in my coat. I, I don't, like, I just do whatever. I really only keep it on me now to count, like, steps. I've been, like, trying to keep track of all my steps. But I probably should just get one of those watches, like a Fitbit or a Garmin watch or something, so I could not do that because it's kind of annoying um yeah i mean i remember you mentioning you wanted to uh, go on walks with us too Is yeah that that'd be cool want to do yeah sometimes i feel like um i don't get to see you guys as much just because everyone's getting older and we're doing our own thing yeah i just don't want to uh drift apart D- disappear yeah into the abyss of this planet <laughs> no we go i go six days a week so whenever you want to go All right. it's outside it's safe forest Hikes. I mean, they're that safe. <laughs> safe like COVID safe. Like we're outside in the sun. Oh, okay. Like it's the safest thing you actually can do. And you're exercising. It's good for the immunity, yeah. you know? I like to take my dog on walks. That's good too. Um, I don't know how, what kind of shape your dog's in. They can handle five older. mile. Yeah. No, five I, mile I hikes are pretty on brutal. That, on that. It's hard as a human being, let alone a dog, you know? But they're fun. They're great. And it's a good time to talk. Yeah. Maybe this weekend. I have to go to um, South Bend tomorrow. For work? Yeah, I'm going to be there from Thursday to Saturday. Nice. Orchestra stuff? Yeah. Nice. What are you doing? What time do you come back Saturday? Oh, actually, not Saturday. Not till the evening. I won't be home probably till about 11. Oh, at night? Yeah. Oh, okay. Do you guys yeah. walk on Sunday? Uh, I normally take off Sundays, but there's exceptions. Like sometimes if um, I went somewhere or was busy and I couldn't walk on a Friday, so I'll, I'll go on a Sunday. But yeah, I always pr- do one day off. I'll probably be pretty tired on Sunday, so. Yeah, I got a session Sunday. I don't think I could do Sunday. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll figure we'll it out. We'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the last thing I want to touch on before we go. How long has it been? I can't tell. Guess. You, you, okay. So Two before, hours. 
two hours and 23 minutes. Oh, okay. Not Rem- bad. Remember when you said one hour? Yeah, like, I was oh, like, I'm not going to be able to talk for two hours. I mean, we, that's the thing. Like, we we barely touched much. We focused on a few things that we could, like, go forever. There's so much to talk. It's life. Like, that's the beauty of a podcast, especially one that is themed like this, where it's really just yeah. conversation with no no point in place, just kind of going. I hope my explanations came across, because sometimes it's hard to explain this music music stuff. I mean, I know it, but yeah. to put it in words, it's it's hard. It's hard, and to be honest, it's going to be over a lot of people's heads. I know a lot about music, so I was able to make sense of a lot of what you're saying, but mm-hmm. but that's, whenever you have, whenever a guest is on a podcast that has a very specific, unique um, knowledge of something, it goes over a lot of people's heads. Sometimes those I figured podcasts, you just want me to talk about what I know. Yeah, also. no, that's, no, it's, there's no wrong answer. It's great. I mean, sometimes it, there might be two people that are so fascinated, so fascinated, so enthralled by this that they want to re-listen to the podcast so they can keep learning more about it. Like that happens too. Or they share it with somebody. They go, oh, I'm only familiar with this kind of, but you might like it because I know X, Y, and Z. Like if there was someone else on this podcast explaining this, I'd show it to Jason. Neoff, I'd show it to you. Be like, dude, Jason, you got to check this out. This guy said this, this, and that about that. Mm-hmm. So that happens too. Yeah, the one you did with Joe Strita was awesome. I, I was, learned so much, and it was just cool. And the one with Larry was hilarious. <laughs> oh, that uh, story with the um, the sewer or whatever. Uh, yeah, oh, my uh, God. I want to have on, maybe in the summertime, I want to have you and Joe on. So okay. we could just talk music. I would love to show this stuff to him because exactly. I think he'd like it. That's what I'm talking about. I think he's a good buffer into a different world because he has so much training and so much musical training, you know, with his classical instruments. Yeah. Just different from yours. Um, I like his approach to music. It's great. Oh, he's great. He's a wizard. Yeah. <laughs> he's a wizard for sure. He He's something else. I mean, but it reminds me of you because like I, he didn't, he didn't get a degree in music, you know, and, and neither did you. You guys just put in an intense amount of hours and effort and thought, different thinking, approaching it differently, trying new instruments, trying a completely different world of music a completely different style and finding how it integrates with it. I don't know. I think it's amazing. I I think that because it's not done a lot, you have nothing to base it off of. So in your head, you might feel like, uh, I don't know. Is, yeah, how, kind of sometimes. Yeah, you feel discouraged because you're like, like, what is? what am I doing? You have is nothing to wait against. <laughs> like, you've met thousands of musicians and so have I. I don't know anybody else doing this. Like, you have nothing to wait against. Yeah. You're on your own. The bassists I know, some of them are amazing and some of them are in like top name orchestras, but... I don't know any of them. They all just focus on, you know, maybe some electric bass or some guitar, but it's mostly just excerpts and upright bass and solos. Like, yeah. I don't know anyone who's doing, like, Indian music and some Bach on keyboard. And <laughs> I don't either. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. I, I, sometimes I wish I could still focus on bass because, you know, you spread yourself out, you kind of lose something. But I think, I don't know, you, it, it, everything informs what you're doing. I think you're gaining something from this. Because you're, you're extrapolating from different thought processes of creativity. And yeah, the like, more you, you have know, to draw from, the more right. ideas you have. You're more well-rounded in it. And yeah, I mean, if you spent all your time just upright bass and nothing else, you'd probably be the best upright bass player in the world, right? I don't know about that. But well, I'm just <laughs> saying like if someone did I might that, get in like a, you know, might be do better at auditions yeah <laughs> that's for sure you might you probably would because practice makes perfect right but you're good enough you're proficient enough to get those jobs and when getting those jobs 
now that you have that background and so much more uh, thought and, and, and love and passion from African music, it, Indian it'll music. It'll be hobbies for life. Well, you can add that to it. You can contribute to it. And like, it's going to manifest in its own way. You might, they might not see it, but you'll know, mm-hmm. you know, you'll know. And what's more important than like, without sounding selfish than yourself, like it's your life, it's your body, it's your brain. So you might as well have the most out of it and take away from the most around this experience. Yeah. Than just focusing on one thing. One if you're interested only. in something, follow it. Yeah. Go learn it. Why not? seems like some people don't or don't want to. It's, a, it's daunting. Um, sometimes it's in a, a shame thing. You might feel like you're not doing something right by your your craft, your base, mm-hmm. your ethnicity, your culture, whatever it is. So you're afraid to. Religion. Um, some people would even go into, you know, this because maybe it's like, oh, well, they're Christian and like that's like Hindu. Like just, just that right there might be like, I don't know, it's, it's Indian. It's Hindu. Like I don't know or... What's the other uh, religion they have in India? Was it Shiite? I'm, I'm, they have all kinds of they religions. They have a bunch, right? Yeah. It's not just Hindu. Muslim. Muslim. Um, Sikh. Sikh. That's what I was looking for. Because I'm, I'm trying to remember. Something that asks. Yeah. But those those simple things are there. Just religion turns off certain people. Just because it's a different ethnicity with different religions. And they just, I don't know. Just people are have a type of xenophobia, whether they like to admit it or not. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't, but I don't know if some people do. My aunt, uh, when I started making Indian food, it was like, she, she was telling me, oh, I don't I don't like that kind of food. And I was like, she never even had it. I'm yeah. Like, just try it. Just yeah. try it. And she ends up loving it. It's yeah. great. <laughs> my, so you're making my point for me. Yeah, it's something that deters people without even going to it. It's like, I, I don't know. It's like, I don't know based on what. Yeah, the, the thing is you don't know. So why are you even saying that? Yeah. You literally don't know. So like, try it. Give it some time. Try it out. It's it's a huge pet peeve when you meet adults who, like, won't try something for no reason. They're just, mm-hmm. ah, it's like, what do you, yeah. it's a sad, small <laughs> world you're living in. If you won't try anything, you won't try new music, new films, food, clothing, culture, language, ways of life. You're just going to stick to this little corner of this planet you think you belong in. You know, it's no way to live, but to each their own. Yeah, I mean, if that's what makes me happy, you know, that's great. <laughs> Just don't be <laughs> uh, xenophobic and uh, racist while doing so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, don't do that. That's the problem is that it's fine to – there's nothing against just like liking what you like and stuff, it, but it's the underlying like, you know, negativity of like I don't like that because I don't like the way that food is because I don't like the way that smells or I don't like the way the people speak or the way they look. Like then it's really problematic, very – messed up and that happens too but if you genuinely just try something you don't like it because you don't like it i don't know i still mm-hmm. don't I, th- I still think that's a bunch of nonsense i think it's a learned thing yeah food's food flavor's flavor the mouth is very complicated it can handle so many different flavors and preferences and i think it's quite learned to boil it down to like oh, i don't like that i don't like it it's just like you don't like it because you've been told your whole life not to like it i don't know man being a little harsh I'm just kind of sick and tired of people just being so picky and small in their worlds, you know? Yeah. Just try it. Like, I've been saying a bunch of stuff. I don't even know the answer to it. I'm just saying it to see, like, what, what you might know. And if you correct me, you correct me. And then I learn. Like, now I know, like, oh, there's other religions in India. I, I thought there was, but you said it. I'm like, okay. Now I know. Yeah. India is very diverse. Right. I mean, each town practically has different languages. and Okay different religions and like most countries apparently mm-hmm. right there's when you look 
at the statistics of religions and countries, it's extremely rare that you just see like 100% this. You're always going to see, there's always going to be a dominant one, but you'll always see chunks of different stuff. I mean, different dialects, different languages, different, even different ethnicities crossing over, you know, from different mm-hmm. regions. And it's proximity, how close are they to the next country? Now they're going to have a little bit of that crossing over. You know, there's parts of India that's probably closer to Nepal and Pakistan than they are to, you know, people in the south of India. There's nowhere near that. Mm-hmm. You're going to have differences. Yeah, the, of food, the food's all different. Yeah. Everything. It happens in America, where we're from. Food, the culture, the way of speaking and things is different everywhere you are. You know, if you're in rural America, just middle of nowhere, Montana, you're going to have a different perspective on people, uh, government, small government, large government, laws, gun laws, trespassing laws. These are all different, you know, than they are here. Like, trespassing laws in, like, Chicago, it's like people are only doing that because they're trying to hurt you or rob you. Like, you know if someone's <laughs> trespassing because your house is this small. Clearly, they're trying to come in. But in the middle of, you have 100 acres, someone's trespassing. They might just be cutting through mm-hmm. to go to the next forest because they're camping or something. I don't know. It's not the same thing. And that's just same country, same people, but different perspective. Yeah. We're all in this together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything else you want to add before we c- close? No, that's it. Yeah? I think I went over everything. <laughs> everything ever. Everything of my whole life. Your whole life. <laughs> anything you want to plug? Uh, I have a little YouTube channel. Just Jason this big? How little? Got a few subscribers, and I just post post when I'm practicing every yeah. once in a while. Yeah, it has some singing on it, and like when I play electric bass, so I've been playing orchestral excerpts and then singing along with it. Mm-hmm. And same, I did a few guitar pieces, but just whatever I'm working on, I I post. It's called Jason Niehoff. Yeah, nice. Anything else? Instagram, Facebook, anything? No. Cool. I kind of avoid Facebook. <laughs> I feel you. I was trying to get into it, but I just I don't. I just it's the worst. No I need to I even explain yourself. Like to show, like what I'm doing, or exp- I have to feel like I have to like come up with something witty, or yeah, post a video, or it's just I don't know. It's weird. I I try to use it to promote other people, so that's like how I psych myself into doing it. Oh, okay, you know what I mean. Yeah. That way I could keep it off me. Like I'm in it, but it's I try to make it about other people so I can like psychologically convince myself to do because I I don't really really want to be yeah. on there all the time but i know like it just works well with what i'm trying to do i'm probably just overthinking it but most people are for some reason it's I just fast don't... pace right you post it within an hour it doesn't matter within a day it's completely gone so like what are we overthinking it's just bam in out yeah. in out what's the matter you know yeah it's it complicated it it's because we're <laughs> not taught to learn how to do this we grew up without it it's a weird thing to us now. We didn't do it. When we were 15 years old, we were not. You didn't have MySpace? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. hey, let's go Let's go for a hike. Let's go for a walk. Let's play some music. Let's put Yeah, on. we used to walk everywhere. Yeah. I didn't think about making a video of it and making sure people saw it. I don't know. It's it's challenging, but massive pros and cons. Yeah. So anyway, Jason, thank you for being on here. Thanks for bringing some bread. Yeah, no problem, man. This was um, awesome. Thanks. It was great. Thank you for explaining um, what you're doing with Indian music and what you're trying to do with blending Eastern and Western music together. It's complicated. It's probably going to take a while, but when you f- get it figured out. Might never happen. It's going to happen. It's an idea. <laughs> and you're going to come back on the show and we're going to talk about it then. Um, keep doing what you're doing. You're an excellent musician, great friend, great chef, good person. I've known you a long time, so thank you for being here. And I'm excited to keep saying all the musical things you're doing. And I can't wait to go see you play um, Upright Bass again in the orchestra. It's going to be cool. All right. All right. Ciao. See ya.